It's June 7th. Happy Monday morning to you, Ryan Jesperson here. Welcome to Real Talk. Thanks for hanging out with us in advance. We have a great show in store coming up in about uh, 10 minutes time. I'm going to talk to Cindy Blackstock of the First Nations Child and Family Caring Society, uh, also professor of the School of Social Work at McGill University uh, in beautiful Montreal. Uh, Cindy's going to talk to us about a couple of things well, I actually got a whole bunch going on right now. Um, and uh, Dr. Blackstock, obviously, will get into the conversation around there's a vote going on in the House of Commons today, uh, a vote to end litigation against uh, indigenous kids, residential school survivors uh, uh, to implement the truth and reconciliation calls to action. Some of you may be saying, well, that's obvious. It's obvious what the vote should be. But as as is with the case, you know, the case with all things in politics, it's complicated. And there's going to be a lot that goes into every member of parliament's vote. The ones that vote on this, we'll get into that with Dr. Blackstock. That's coming up. We're also going to take a look at Canada's opioid crisis, in particular, what's going on right now in our home province of Alberta, when Dr. Jennifer Jackson and Claire O'Gorman join us. That's coming up in approximately 45 minutes from right now. Um, we're also going to get into some of the conversations that have been, that have been making news over the weekend. But first, let's remind you that the show is presented every morning by the team at Bitcoin. Well, if you have questions about crypto and who doesn't these days, I mean, what's going on? How do we make sense of this? What's up with the, you know, the bumps and the dips and everything else? The team at Bitcoin. Well, it's a team of real live humans. That's right. You can you can call them or email them and they'll get back to you and answer your questions. I know this because I've done it myself. If you want to learn more about their take on financial sovereignty for, for either individuals or businesses, check them out under the Sponsors tab at RyanJesperson.com. This is Real Talk. Here is my dad, Ryan Jesperson. Yeah, that's my little man, Wyatt Rudy. Had a wonderful weekend with the kiddo, and uh, we hope that you had a chance to get some fresh air yourselves as well. Uh, as I said in my email to our subscribers, you're, you're going to say, oh, here he is. This is this. Here's another pitch for us to spend on Real Talk. Here's another pitch for us to no. Our email list is is completely free. This is the Real Talk Sunday message. We send it out every Sunday evening with a bit of a hint, a bit of a, um, do we call it a precursor to the show, a bit of a tease, you might call it, uh, on what's coming up in the days and in some cases the weeks to come. We give you a peek behind the curtain on what producer Sarah Hoyles is working on, uh, plus my reflections sometimes on, on the interviews that we had uh, in the week prior um, and as I noted in my email you can sign up by the way you can subscribe at ryanjesperson.com just go to the very bottom of the page you punch in your email address we don't spam you we send you an email once a week that's it it's a great way to stay plugged into and connected with the show and and, and I opened my email as I'm typing it yesterday afternoon and and uh, and and why it's outside and he's he's playing on this chalkboard he's got this really cool art station set up and I said to everybody I hope that you know I hope you've had a chance to get some fresh air or to uh, I believe I used the controversial verb to recreate uh, or whatever it is uh, that that allows you a chance to reflect and to recharge some of you, the shift workers in our audience in our community here will say, yeah, I was talking about the weekend. I was I was working 14 hours split shifts. I was pulling doubles for you guys. Thanks to everybody that worked over the weekend as well. It was a beautiful one. And also a weekend, you know, full of reflection. And I think that that's probably the case for most people in Canada right now. I wouldn't be surprised to hear anybody say, yeah, I've just kind of had kind of had a lot on my mind. Right. I, there, there's a lot going on that's that's demanding 
our attention. There's there's a lot going on. We're trying to sort of stay on top of it. It's the time of year typically where we get set a little bit to, to check out mentally, isn't it? If we're being honest, you know, June coming up to, to summer solstice and then into July and, and then we're in summer mode and out camping or, or hiking or fishing or doing whatever, you know, hitting patios, walking the dogs, letting ourselves to kind of mentally wander. It's, it's always been kind of a big part of how I think people approach summer, but it feels different right now because there's things that that as a community uh, there's things that as a nation right now that demand our attention you know one of those has obviously the pandemic you know coronavirus and the, the impact of covid-19 and vaccinations and 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 reentry plans and reopening plans and everything that goes along with that everybody's trying to stay on top of the news and the details about about the different vaccines and and expiry dates are changing and availability and fast tracking the second shots and you're you're trying to you know on behalf of yourself and your family or your workplace your colleagues your friends you're trying to stay on top of those stories and then, and then obviously, we've got what happened in Kamloops, in to Kamloops to Swetmuk, the, the discovery of, of what's believed to be at least 215 children's remains outside a former residential school, and, and the entire nation is wrestling with that. And then everything else, you know, the, the the politics and the matters of the economy and the job markets and real estate and everything. And sometimes we just need to be like, right? Where do you find that time? I'm noting, and Sarah and I were talking about just a while ago, we can't ignore how my conversation last week with Dr. Jody Carrington continues to see sustained traffic on our YouTube channel. Uh, even the, the the short, the brief clip that I shared with you on Twitter, you know, I do that. Uh, thanks to our team, Sam and Sarah work hard to pull those clips, make them available to us. And every afternoon we push those out so you can see, hey, listen, here's a little tiny snippet of these interviews, these conversations that we've had on Real Talk. And then I always include the YouTube link so you can go straight to it and watch it in its entirety. And, and Jody Carrington brought a really great perspective to the mix. Very candid. Do I remember her words correctly? Did she say she said something like I am like, I mean, it has to be said in context. It has to be understood in context. But she said something like I'm racist to my core. Yeah, she just boom. And that's what I really appreciated about it. And I know some people were like, why do you have a white lady talking about right about like the the current state of things and the oppression of indigenous folks and he was like, no, but this is this is one of this is a really important perspective in that where does white supremacy reside? It resides in the white culture. Yeah. So, and I, I, she she brought it like oh, I, I just I was like, this is the voice we need to hear. We need to hear. We need to have more folks like Jody willing to step up and be like, yeah, I am fallible. I am flawed and I am willing to learn. And I loved the big like the thing that the clip ends on is that we need to listen Listen, listen, and people are, are retweeting it and sharing it and saying, I commit to listen. I commit. To, so people, you've, you've got to check that out. It was a it was a great conversation. I, I did see a few comments on it going. I think she's great, but the profanity. <laughs> I, mean, yeah, I mean, she definitely, you know, she definitely, yeah, she brought it in more ways than one. God bless Dr. Jody. We just had a, a great conversation. So we're talking about, you know, summer and our typical 
sort of what is it like a habit like as as bears and other animals like hibernate or migrate or whatever in the summer we check out a little bit mentally with things like Canada Day parties right and over the weekend I'm noticing two things and they're happening at the same time and I shared with you last week about my own personal journey because you share your journeys with us and we meet here and we make a commitment to do that together and to be real And I was telling you, I was standing under a a Canadian flag the other day and and just reflecting on it, like just standing there. I felt like in my mind it was flapping in slow motion. I was having one of those moments where it's just everything, like all this this thought process was washing over me and just trying to process everything. And you understand this. I mean, and, and it's, you know, it's either nuanced or it's not. I can't wait to talk to Dr. Blackstock about this in just a moment. But, you know, you you, you take it a look at something like, for example, the Pope's comments over the weekend when 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 the, the Pope chimes in on what's going on in Canada right now and everybody behind the scenes and the Canadian bishops are saying, well, hang on a second, like, like, you know, the reason why the Pope's not specifically saying certain things right now, let alone apologizing is he wants the Canadian bishops to kind of take the lead on this. Other people are saying, no, there's rumors behind the scenes that the Pope's going to be coming to Canada this summer and that, that that's when a formal apology will happen for all this. And people are talking about it. But the, the Pope's comments over the weekend, he says, you know, to the people of Canada and, and even just that everybody goes, hang on a second. You know, there are two distinct communities. And for you to address the people of Canada right out of the gates, you kind of miss the point. You kind of miss the mark. And you realize that language is loaded. You know, and I mean, I think back to conversations even that that I've had with like Chief Alan Adam, for example, on this show, the uh, chief, uh, you know, up with uh, Athabasca Fort Chippewan. And at the end of the interview you you may remember this you may not for me it was kind of like this small little thing that turned into a bit of a big thing behind the scenes when i just at, at the end in thanking him for his time said you know chief you, you've just done remarkable things advocating for indigenous canadians and my email inbox just went and people went don't you call me an indigenous canadian you can call me an indigenous person in canada an indigenous person of canada I mean, people have different opinions on this. Language matters. Language is big. And so yesterday, two things are going on. I'm, I'm, I'm watching a live sporting event on TV. The IIHF World Men's Hockey Championship. And as I do, I'm also scrolling Twitter on my phone. Canada wins gold a very unlikely story as a matter of fact we could just talk hockey for a while i, I you know i won't i won't get into it because once i go down that rabbit hole we'll, we'll have to fight to get back out but canada down losing its first three games then coming back this unlikely championship story win you know i mean sorry spoiler alert but like you know if you haven't watched it by now what do you expect wins it in overtime this dramatic win and and the canadian men's team you know leaping on each other's backs and hugging and high-fiving and pounding fists and celebrating and, and and there's emotion you can feel it it's palpable and the gold medals go on and then the flag rises and as i say this right now i literally physically just got chills again and as o canada starts playing i find myself jumping up off the couch like by myself not to impress anybody not to show that to anybody i mean here i am telling thousands of people about it but that's not the point 
instinctively, I jump up. And O Canada plays and, and, and the national anthem. We're so proud of our hockey team. And at the same time on Twitter, cancel Canada Day is trending. Feels like a different Canada Day this year. It is a different Canada Day this year, and people want to see it canceled. And this isn't the first time. I've, I've done radio interviews on, on the Cancel Canada Day movement five or six or seven years ago. I remember when people first started talking about it. I mean, I'd get absolutely pile-driven for even hosting conversations about it on the radio. But the conversation's more mainstream now based on this story out of Kamloops. So that's our unofficial unscientific twitter poll today every weekday morning around you know 10 o'clock eastern eight o'clock mountain time i put out a tweet letting you know who's on the show and today i've asked you where do you stand on cancel canada day and as you can see there's not consensus anywhere we're closing in on 200 votes i just posted i'm I'm, I'm hoping to see a couple thousand on this and i think we probably will early on out of the 188 votes 21 percent of you say you're canceling canada day 46% of you say you're celebrating Canada Day and 33% of you, and this is where I am, say it's complicated. So we'll leave some room for conversation on that on the show today. I make you that promise. We'll drop in on our live chat. We'll take a look at our hashtag Real Talk RJ. That hashtag is powered by the team at Park Power. Of course, you know that coming up on a decade now, they've been providing Internet, electricity and natural gas services across the province of Alberta. And if you go to their website, parkpower.ca right now, use the promo code 2021 dash real talk. They're going to give you 70 bucks off your first bill. No strings attached, commercial or residential at parkpower.ca. Also, a big shout out to the team at Friesen Brothers. I want to let you know that if you don't yet have Father's Day plans or if you're not yet sure what you're going to do for dad, consider the Friesen Brothers in the Edmonton, Fort Saskatchewan and Stony Plains stores, the Father's Day barbecue gift box. This is absolutely fantastic. They cover all the work for you from like this really great Housemade. Okay, the reason I'm going to talk about this like an authority is because we had a chance to dig into one early. There was a photo shoot that had to happen, details to come on that. So I have seen and experienced the Father's Day gift box. This like incredible chicken and cheese dip. They've got the Friesen Brothers cinnamon buns. They've got these beautiful steaks, perfect sides, fresh produce. I mean, the whole nine yards. You can find more details by getting in touch with those three stores in Edmonton, Fort Saskatchewan and Stony Plain. Plus, a reminder, Friesen Brothers store number 16 in the province now open in Sundry. Friesen Brothers is Alberta grown and Alberta owned. Our next guest is uh, recognized across the nation uh, and beyond as uh, a significant voice, an informed voice, and certainly a respected one in conversation around relationships with indigenous people and communities across this country. Uh, She is Gitson, uh, home territory uh, of the indigenous people, uh, Gitson, most of the area known as the Skeena County in northwestern British Columbia for context. She's a professor in the School of Social Work at McGill University. She's the executive director of the First Nations Child and Family Caring Society of Canada. Uh, Dr. Cindy Blackstock, welcome to the show. It's a real honor to have you joining us this morning. 
Good morning. It's a real pleasure to be here. Can can I ask you candidly out of the gates? I've, I've, I can't ignore the movement, this hashtag cancel Canada Day that's been happening um, and not just over the weekend. As noted, people have been talking about this for years. I have this in front of my Twitter followers today and, and, and people are split on it. Is this something that you've been thinking about? Where, could, would you contribute to this to this conversation? You know, when I think about when people sing the song, Oh, Canada, it's not to a political party. It's not to a government. It's to a set of values of justice, of fairness, of truth, and respect, and freedom. And when our governments act in ways that wander away from those values, either in, for ourselves or for others in the country, it is our patriotic obligation to stand up and call the government back. And that's the case with the failure of the federal government to respect and honor the truth and reconciliation uh, calls to action. It is the case where it needs to drop the residential school uh, litigation that it has currently ongoing. And actually next week, Ryan, they're gonna be litigating against First Nations children in court. So this is an opportunity for all of your listeners and viewers to get on to their member of parliament and say, you know what, if you're gonna do injustice, you're not doing it in my name. You know, we actually expect that people are treated fairly and respectfully and decently and with justice and with honesty in this country. And uh, today at three o'clock, House of Commons is gonna be voting on a motion to um, stop this litigation against survivors and indigenous kids and implement the TRC calls to action. So it'd be good to see how MPs in Alberta are gonna vote. Yeah, let's talk about that today. It's, I mean, we're 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 uh, we're grateful to have you today, considering the fact that it's as mentioned this afternoon, the House of Commons will see a vote uh, to end litigation against Indigenous kids, residential school survivors, to implement the Truth and Reconciliation calls to action. Obviously, you've been tweeting a ton about this. You're a you're a definitive voice on this, if you if you will. Can, can you take us in through your perspective on some of the really significant uh, elements of of what's going to be voted on today? Plus, you know, the bigger picture, the conversation conversation Canadians should be having? Sure. So just for folks to know, in 1907, Canada's own chief medical health officer showed that the unequal provision of health care funding to Indigenous children in the schools and poor health practices were contributing to the death rates of 25% to 50%. His name was Dr. Bryce. And the government of Canada um, took his report, but they refused to act. And so he leaked it to the newspapers and the front pages of editors uh, called on the government, you got to end these inequalities, you got to save these kids' lives. Canada didn't do it. And we see the same cycle over and over in the decades. So we get to the tragedy of so many children dying, so many children losing their childhoods in residential schools. The Truth and Reconciliation Commission was really about the survivor setting a minimum standard of what needed to be done to make sure this never happens again and proper dignity and restitution is made to those who are so seriously harmed by this. Now, the last residential school closed in 1996, but the government's wrongdoing towards generations of First Nations kids continues. The federal government funds services on reserve and does so at a far lesser level. So uh, in 2007, we actually filed litigation against Canadian government uh, because it was providing unequal health care services and it wasn't responding to reports that were showing how much significantly less they were funding and that that was driving this new generation into foster care at rates that exceeded residential school. 
So um, the TRC's top calls to action are equity and child welfare and something called Jordan's Principle to make sure First Nations kids can get the help they need when they need it, free of any discrimination, right? So they can help recover from this friggin' residential school trauma and everything else like that. Well, the federal government is still litigating against these kids. Next week on Monday, the federal government will go to court. They will try to avoid uh, compensating children. And these are still children who are harmed by their discriminatory behavior in ways that separated from their families, hurt them, and in some case led to their deaths. And then the second thing the federal government is litigating is they don't wanna help kids off reserve, get the help they need under Jordan's principle. So this is why there's all this consistent line in government behavior. And this is why it's so important that good people, no matter where you live, no matter what your political party, you tell the federal government, if you are gonna litigate against kids, or against residential school survivors, you don't do that in my name and you're not getting my vote. Cindy, uh, I would imagine that different people w will have different feelings on what the appropriate uh, approach to this is, whether it's the, you know, the, the federal government dropping these these litigation efforts, whether it's a settlement, whether it's, uh, um, you know, restructuring how we do politics in Canada, which is part of a bigger picture. I'd love to have a conversation about. But I mean, people talk about abolishing the Indian Act and what that looks like. I was listening to a podcast I, I really enjoy over the weekend, The Strategist, where uh, Stephen Carter, a political strategist of, of Alberta, is talking about almost I don't want to use words he didn't use, but not sort of like a shadow ministry where there would be indigenous representation in all the ministries in Canada. And and then his colleague on the podcast, uh, Corey Hogan's talking about how that's imposing yet more structure on indigenous people. If That may not be what they'd be looking for. And it's a big conversation about how the nation, I don't want to say moves forward. Uh, but how the nation probably reflects on this conversation that we're having right now and what Canada does about it. Bigger picture. Where do you believe that indigenous people and non-indigenous people in this country need to move toward? What does the future look like for you? Bigger picture. The future looks like for me that First Nations kids don't have to fight their entire childhoods to be get a, a fair chance to grow up safely in their families, get a good education, be healthy and proud of who they are. Um, that we actually have a non-Indigenous population who is trusted with the truth by the federal government and by their provincial governments to learn about the history of their country and then to be able to calibrate their government and really hold them accountable for acting in ways that are inconsistent with their, that are consistent with our values and implement the solutions that are already on the books. The good news about all of this is that the solutions are on the books. The governments just need to act on them. We have a solution, for example, to get rid of that racist Indian Act. And just for your listeners and viewers to know, that's the same piece of legislation that uh, pushed First Nations kids into residential schools. And it's still on the books, even though uh, in 1996, there was a royal commission that set out a 20 year pathway to get rid of that thing. So there's all kinds of solutions. We the best thing we can do as members of the public is push our elected representatives at all levels of government to implement them, because if we did that, we would, uh, we would finally free the country from the chains of this racial discrimination by fiscal policy. Finally, we would set our kids free. What do you think is going to happen this afternoon? And what do you think it's going to say? Um, I expect that uh, the government, a lot of them won't show up because uh, they don't want their name attached to this, but uh, they, they don't want to go against the ranks of their party. 
it's going to pass. The Conservatives, the Bloc, the NDP and the Green Party have all said that they would vote in favour of this motion. And unfortunately, I don't think the government's going to listen to it. I think that we will find ourselves in court on Monday trying to defend this generation of kids and uh, the survivors uh, from uh, this ongoing litigation by the government of Canada. I was I was paying it. I saw over the weekend, Dr. Heidi Fry, the MP out of uh, Vancouver Center, had been tweeting about boil water advisories and how many of them had been dropped in in uh, in indigenous communities in Canada. And, and I mean, I see I saw a lot of people that were applauding the the progress there. But let's be honest, there's there's also been um some some pretty fair dialogue over the past while about this federal government's performance uh, when it comes to implementing the recommendations, the calls to action from the Truth and Reconciliation Commission's report, when it comes to commitments that have been made to indigenous communities across Canada, including those boil water advisories and others. And then there's all these conversations around children and care, et cetera. I mean, there's a lot going on right now. How would you assess big picture, first of all, and then we can certainly get down to specifics yeah. but how would you assess this federal government's performance in meeting and and answering and and fulfilling its own promises uh electoral and otherwise when it comes to indigenous people um and, and in the bigger picture of reconciliation how would you evaluate the federal government's performance i would say right now um it's uh very mediocre uh when we look at independent historian ian mosby's ranking of how the government of canada is implementing the trc's calls to action they've only done a handful of and in the case of uh, this litigation on Monday, they're actually actively attacking two of them. So I don't think that there's a very positive kind of um, report to give out to the government. And on the water thing, you know, like I hear this all the time. I'm stunned that these communities don't have clean water like today. Uh, you know, I hear the government say sometimes, well, it's too remote. You know, it's it's too difficult. Um the space station, population six, has clean water to drink. They also have high-speed internet access, and only 35% of First Nations communities have that. And when I saw that, the government does complex things all the time. Like, they negotiated that trade agreement with that nutcase Trump in the White House. Never once did I hear, well, that's too complicated. That'll take us another five, six years to get that done. Or they rolled out CERB, which was much needed by people in uh, community. They did that almost overnight. So they can do it, but they just don't have the political will to get the job done yet. But with everyone's support, we can make it happen. Dr. Blackstock, it's uh, it's it's estimated that I, I mean, and I've seen numbers around. I think the official number is that is just over three thousand uh, young Indigenous children died uh, while attending residential schools. The number forty one hundred seems to have been accepted and adopted across the country, but now there seems to be informed speculation that the number could be and quite likely is uh, larger than that. It's the number two fifteen that really resonated that sent a shockwave. Uh, across this country. Um, millions and millions of people have felt it. What is it, do you think, specifically? I mean, it, we're, we're talking to Indigenous uh, people, leaders, advocates, etc. Um, anybody that's been paying attention to the Truth and Reconciliation Commission's work over the past number of years that are saying people have been screaming that people, elders and survivors have been talking about this for decades. This shouldn't be a surprise. It's shocking, but it shouldn't be surprising. Why do you think, why do you think 215 resonated with people where... 4,100 maybe didn't. I think that because the stories have piled up on the Canadian consciousness in a way that we can no longer look away. And I think when you people think about this, 
These are 215 little kids who died away from their families, alone, and although we don't know the direct cause of death at this moment, uh, we do know from residential school survivors that many of these children died of abuse, neglect, or the preventable de uh, disease that Dr. Bryce tried, tried to stop, uh, due related to the federal government's unequal treatment of them in healthcare. So I think that that just got a visceral response from people in a way that they cannot look away. But here's the thing, Ryan, is that whenever this hits the news and the Canadian public and the media look away, the Canadian government and the, uh, continues the injustices. So our opportunity right now is to stay laser focused on this and to make sure that we watch not what politicians say, but to watch what politicians do. Why do you think it is that, that the federal government, I mean, I, I, I may be oversimplifying the entire thing, but I'm seeing and I'm sure you saw too the, the, the proverbial hand grenades that are going in back and forth right now between the government of Canada and the Vatican, basically, yeah. Yeah. right? Toronto's yeah. Archbishop is, is calling, uh, you know, the, the prime minister's comments unhelpful. I see Minister Carolyn Bennett is calling the bishop's comments unhelpful. Uh, I mean, are both of these institutions, do you think, or is, is it concern about financial liability or is it more than that i mean can, can big picture what do you think well i mean the the church and the, and the government of canada we're in this together right they're they're both offenders in this process and i think they're trying to distract from their own culpability by pointing at the other side what they need to be doing is keeping focused on these children and on the truth and reconciliation commission's calls to action and stepping up and doing what they need to do uh, this uh, finger pointing back and forward doesn't help. And the church for its place has never apologized. It uh, makes, um, it has never disclosed all of the records it has in its possession about these children, who they may be, who, how did they die? What, ha what happened to the perpetrators of these, uh, uh, these murders and other types of maltreatment of children? Nor has the church ever made proper restitution. So both of them need to be accountable. And the government of Canada, by the way, also hasn't disclosed all of its records. So we need to keep them both jointly accountable for what they did to these kids and not let their finger pointing back and forward like a bunch of kids who have been caught in some wrongdoing and never want to take responsibility. They're grown up adults and they're, and they're supposed to be acting in moral ways that bring dignity to Canadians. I think that they're acting in ways that are really embarrassing right now. You've we had put up with that. You've had success in court in past uh, in 2007, in 2016. Yeah. yeah, can, yeah. can you reflect on that? And, and, and do you think that those past uh, successes in court? I mean, can you see a similar trend? Oh, yeah. Like, I mean, the truth will out, right, eventually. And what we did is with the Assembly of First Nations and the Caring Society, we, piled, uh, we uh, filed litigation against Canada to end those inequalities in First Nations children's services. Uh, the, we filed it in 2007. The feds threw everything they could at it to try and get it dismissed, but it was heard in 2013-14. The decision in 2016 found the federal government racially discriminating against these kids in ways that separated from their families. The government was ordered to stop, but it didn't stop. And so we've had 19 non-compliance orders issued against the Canadian government, as well as procedural orders since 2016. The good news is, is that in every turn, the children win. And so that's what I expect will happen. But 
The real thing is here, Ryan, is that kids should not have to litigate with the Canadian government just to get basic public services. And that's where the Canadian public can help us with it, is saying, look, enough of this fighting these kids in court. Just do the right thing. I would imagine that your spirit bear will be with you yes. uh, when you he head will. into court. Uh, can, can you tell us about this fella that, that, that's become this, this, this beautiful bear uh, that, that's become quite a symbol that accompanies you uh, in some pretty high-profile appointments? Yeah, like this uh, bear was actually gifted to us to, to remind us what we're doing that litigation for, which was for the children. And uh, when we uh, started the litigation, very few uh, non-Indigenous Canadians showed up, but that all changed in about 2009 when children themselves started showing up. And when they walked into the, the courtroom, they would see the bear and they would grab him and tell him all their stories. He'd come back with fan mail. And uh, over the time, he really took on an identity and really represented not only the First Nations children, but the other children who were standing with them. And unlike adults who had kind of normalized this discrimination over time, these kids were learning this stuff in school. And they said, this isn't fair treating First Nations kids like this. So Spirit Bear actually... Uh, goes to all the court hearings. He's a witness to this. And he is now officially, Ryan, a barrister. And he has an Osgood certificate to prove it. And he has a PhD from the University of Victoria and a Bear So Wise from McMaster. And there's a whole series of books that we do that tell the true story of how this bear, along with all the children, really stood together for justice and fairness for this generation of First Nations kids. And all the proceeds go to Children's Reconciliation Projects, so you can check them out. Wow. There's got to be something we can come up tying this into the podcast, uh, Cindy. Yes, I'll do my best. Podcast. Just as you're, as you're rattling off these achievements and accomplishments of, of the honorary doctorates that Spirit Bear has received, I was, I was doing my best to come up with something we could appoint on the fly. But listen, in all seriousness, we're so grateful for your perspective thank you for your advocacy and uh, giving us so many important things to think about and continue to consider it's been an honor speaking with you thank you ryan and for your viewers in alberta metro cinema is going to be showing the animated film spirit bear and children make history and it's for free so check out metro cinema in edmonton and you can watch this great animated film that tells the true story of how these kids and bears came together so oh, don't miss it cindy that's wonderful thank you for the heads up there that's dr cindy blackstock uh, executive director of the first nations child and family caring society Thank you very much. Thank Bye-bye. you. You bet. Um, I can tell you, we'll get the details on the Metro Cinema thing. Hey, that's very cool. I'm thinking right now, like that, that is very cool. And I'm so glad that she mentioned it. We get at that. I mean, that conversation could go for another 90 minutes. I'm, I'm grateful for her perspective. It's a, a, a big day for her and for the First Nations Child and Family Caring Society, obviously for MPs and political watchers across Canada, for indigenous people, for uh, agencies and advocacy groups. Uh, everybody's going to be paying attention to that vote that goes this afternoon. I'm watching on the on the live chat and um, I'm curious to know your, your assessment on, on how the federal government has performed on this file. Um, I acknowledge that, as is the case with all things at any level of politics, it's complicated and there are deep seated issues here. I'm always curious to know when you talk to somebody as informed as Dr. Blackstock, when you ask, you know, I said it a few times, big picture, like like broadening the focus, looking more long term. What does the relationship look like between the federal government between Canadians, uh, between Indigenous people, when you have these conversations around, you know, two cultures or, or walking, you know, side by side or two communities, uh, there's a lot of that um, conversation, you know, 
if we were in coffee shops right now at coffee shops, people having these conversations on social media, talking to one another. But how does that apply politically? What does that look like? Abolishing the Indian Act. What does that mean? What are the implications? Jillian's watching live this morning says, I I bet you the federal liberals felt pressured to fight this. This is an interesting angle she takes pressured to fight this because of all the flack they got for paying off Omar Cotter. It'll be easier to do the right thing now that the conservatives will think it's bad PR to fight this. I saw that I, I can't ignore the fact that both our editorial producer and our technical producer both went mm, when they heard the name Omar Cotter. Sam Brooks, you, you, you had an audible reaction to that. Do you, do you think that that's a do you think is, is that a stretch? Do you think that Jillian might be on to something? I, you know, what's interesting to me is, is I, I've met Omar Cotter. Um, so I just like, it kind of was just a bit of a flash over me of just sort of the, you know, the, his story and his legacy and, and, and the, the Metro Cinema doc that they had about him a little while ago. Yeah. So um, that was actually kind of what the audible reaction came from. But uh, yeah, I think that it's, it's interesting to see the conservatives on the other side of this. And, and I don't want to, well, we don't know yet. We haven't we, we seen it. We don't know yet. We've, we, have a, a sense that them and, and basically all the opposition parties are going to vote uh, vote in favor of this. And uh, yeah, it's just it's I don't know. It's an interesting sort of realignment. And I mean, we all still remember that, like the, the liberals stormed into power in 2015 and basically said unequivocally, we're going to fix all this. And they didn't. Yeah. And well, they said like, they were going to fix a whole bunch of things. Yeah. Right? And it just so like put your money where your mouth is. You know what I mean? And, and yeah, I don't know. Sonny says the litigation is not to avoid compensation. The litiga- litigation is to determine who gets to make that decision. It's manipulation of perception for political game. Chelsea says, I've heard mixed things about the Indian Act regarding removing it, including very real fears that removing or amending it would, could end up uh, being a negative for indigenous people. But I don't know if that's accurate, says Chelsea. We'll look into this. I mean, this will be part of our ongoing. I mean, Sarah's booking the show one, two, three weeks in advance right now. We've got lots of asks out, a lot of different perspectives that we're looking to glean. And this is something that we're very intrigued by. This is something that we want to have these conversations. We're, I'm right there with you, Chelsea, going, I've heard some stuff. I'm not sure if it's 100 percent accurate. That's that's the average, ordinary, everyday person's reality on a lot of things. Right. That's why we do this show. I do the show selfishly so I can have all these interviews and ask all these questions so I can try to figure out what the hell is going on half the time. We're just grateful to have all of you along with us. Well, take a look at where our unofficial unscientific Twitter poll is today on canceling Canada Day in just a second. I wanted to remind you that the team at Eden Landscaping is hard at work this week and every week. That's going to be the case over the next number of months. They've got multiple crews out making reality that's right your dreams that they've mapped out you've told them what you want in your front or backyard space and what you've always wanted to do maybe it's that outdoor cooking station or finally you're going to put in a fire pit with that beautiful that you know those bricks that just you, you sit there and you go did somebody really do this by hand their teams do that kind of stuff you dream it they can make it happen you can check out their work at landscapeedmonton.ca don't delay call or send an email to eden landscaping today also wanted to let you know that the dairy queens of northwest edmonton and sherwood park want to thank you for your, the enthusiasm you showed toward the dollar 99 peanut buster parfait I regret to inform you that this special is now over. However, however, everyone, don't worry. Sarah Hoyles looks troubled. Sarah, don't worry. 
I'm because concerned. Starting I'm... today, starting today, all Father's Day cakes. Uh, the Dairy Queens of Northwest Edmonton and Sherwood Park, that's Palisades and Emeo, Newcastle, Westmont, Y Gardens, and Baseline Road are five bucks off. Five bucks off if you mention Real Talk or Jespo. These are the layers of vanilla soft serve, chocolate soft serve, our famous cookie and fudge center. I'm kind of missing the real hunt. No, but do you want one more? One well, more for good measure? Well, I, maybe we could do the. Um, um, yeah, we're going to try too hard. It's Don't gonna, force it. We're not going to force it. We can't force it. It has to happen organically. Absolutely. It has to happen organically. You are going to save five bucks on your Father's Day cake at the Dairy Queens of Northwest Edmonton and Sherwood Park. But here's the thing. Here's what I'm going to ask of you. Because they are collecting donations for the Stollery Children's Hospital Foundation. So maybe consider taking that five bucks and plug it towards the Stollery. Just a thought. Just a thought at the Dairy Queens of Northwest Edmonton and Sherwood Park. Dr. Cindy Blackstock talking about releasing records and people want to see records released of, of not just this uh, former residential school in Kamloops, but all of them. People want to see the books opened up. And that, that includes any information that the federal government may have. The onus is on is on a whole bunch of people right now, a bunch of institutions, if you will. And and I thought this was pretty interesting. Brent, Butt. Brent Butt, the the renowned and celebrated Canadian actor, of course, that one of the uh, geniuses behind Corner Gas tweeted this over the weekend when the bodies of 215 children are discovered in a mass grave at a school. The operators of that school shouldn't have the option to not release the records. Who's asking politely kick some doors in that from Brent Butt. And I think that that resonated with a lot of people like like, hang on a second. Um, there are very significant red flags here. There are red. There, as a matter of fact, if, if you know the, the devastating metaphor, maybe the surveyor using that radar equipment on the ground could have potentially been using red flags. Maybe there's 215 red flags on the property. But the point is, you're in the type of position where in any other circumstance, you would expect yellow tape around the facility. You would expect investigators to suggest that it would be an option that the records upon discretionary choice may not be released just i don't think is going to land very well with the average person well when you look at it i mean there's been discussion that this is going to become a criminal case so in a criminal case yeah people don't get to decide whether or not i mean you get warrants you then have to release the documents so it's it is shocking i mean i understand that also the relationship between law enforcement rcmp i mean there was involvement from from those organizations in residential schools so it's very fraught but point being if it was a criminal case if it was a criminal investigation they wouldn't have a choice to be like, I don't feel like it. Yeah. I don't, like, and by they, I mean the, the church would not have the ability to say, I don't, I don't feel like it. It's not in our best interest. And it's like, well, that, that's besides the point. And I feel like the public opinion on this uh, has already changed dramatically. Mm. Whether or not, and I hate to put it so sort of, you know, to sit here from sort of a strategic or like an analyzing the numbers or trends type perspective on something where there's so much emotion uh, involved as well and, and heartbreak and people feel sick to their stomachs and and obviously uh, many people thousands of people are being forced by the way as well to relive trauma right now I mean we've you know I, I obviously would never get into the details but we've put out interview requests with people that are like we just need 
to be in in thought right now. We need to be alone right now in contemplation. Thank you for respecting our privacy. Um, and this is understandably the case with many voices across Canada right now. That's where people are at. And so, you know, this is uh, but I but I think bigger picture, the the you know, the public opinion on this and the way that that will factor in is I think members of the public now and for whatever reason, and we'll continue to pick people's brains on this guests brains on this. People have a, a stronger resolution now across the country to demand the truth on this than they did during the Truth and Reconciliation Commission hearings. Do you remember? I mean, that that's that's I only have anecdotal evidence of that. It's only what I'm noticing. But I think if you ask the average person in this country, that's probably what they might say. I would I would agree with you. I think but I think Cindy of Blackstock made a really beautiful point that it's 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 about this building momentum that we can no longer look away. And I think the truth and reconciliation, um, I think that was part of it. It's not that it, it was for naught and it wasn't uh, lost. The energy wasn't um, in vain, that it actually was about building towards this. And yes, it's slow. And would I have wanted it to happen during? Absolutely. But we're here and it's, we're, yeah, I feel like there's finally the reckoning that has been so so needed for far far too long 443 votes to this point on uh, our unscientific unofficial twitter poll this morning we asked where do you stand on on the movement this hashtag was trending over the weekend cancel canada day uh just under 19 percent of respondents to this point say that they're canceling canada day uh, just over 46% early in this poll. The poll is only, uh, it's less than an hour old. Uh, just over 46% say they will be celebrating Canada Day and about 35%, just under 35% say it's complicated. Well, what's complicated about it? Let's get to the comments here. Keith says, I understand that we need deep reflection when it comes to the errors of the past. Canada's history is full of negatives to learn from to reflect on Canada is is also the place that my family chose to immigrate to after World War II. It's the birthplace of basketball, penicillin, the zipper, and real talk. Well done. Keith trying to sway my perspective on this. Megan says, personally, I think we need to do both. If there's not a reflective component of Canadian pride, you're missing the point of what makes us great. Ignorance of our past is no longer an excuse. It's time to listen and time to grow. Canada. Alex says, I always celebrate my country. Are we perfect? No. But as the son of a proud World War II veteran, I celebrate all the good while recognizing where we failed and where we must do better. We're still a country of good people who are stronger together with all of our diversity. Baxter boy says, I get that we're angry and rightfully so. But this is still an amazing country. We're going to learn about our past and come out of it stronger and more united. Tracy's talking about adding more culture, bringing in powwows, she says, you know, bring back more cultural learning, allow everybody to showcase what makes them Canadian, learn what has been misunderstood from all cultures. She says, I'd love to spend this year uh, learning more indigenous heritage, uh, heritage, dances, crafting history. I would love that, she says. Penny says it's complicated says i rarely celebrate canada day anyway but this year it offers me an opportunity to reflect on the origins of canada and our colonial past we are okay but we need a lot of work to be as shiny as we think we are i like that from penny someone says it's really not complicated they left the comment at that 
Chad says, I understand the idea to cancel. There's a lot of shitty things that have happened in our history, but there's a lot of amazing things we've collectively accomplished. Both things need to be recognized equally. We need to be more inclusive. Sarah, you don't look sold. Stop it. (laughs) You're going to have to you're going to have to stifle your body language if you don't want to be called upon. We're still learning this. We're still working this out between you and I. But when I see when I see when I see uh, I I just about misuse. I I didn't want to. When I said when I see a dramatic reaction and then you could rightfully say you call me dramatic, which I'm not. When I see it, when I see an, an, you know, a noticeable visceral, visceral reaction. What was it about Chad's comment? Um, To me, I just I don't think that it's mutual, like that it's not one or the other. Um, And but I also I don't know. I I just I don't think that they're 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 equal either. I think that the the harms done are gigantuan, gigantuan. And I struggled on Canada 150. Like I did not celebrate when everyone was like tooting the horns and you know shaking the flags i i i was not celebrating because there was there was already that the murmur the murmur mm-hmm. of like what are we celebrating we're celebrating genocide well and and i'm not sure that it's that simple i i i think characterizing canada day as a celebration of genocide is <laughs> okay <laughs> well that's what you, i mean that's what you said right and i i appreciate the candor but and if I'm mischaracterizing you, definitely say. And I, I, Sorry, I guess I, I should say that it's not only that, but it that is part of it. So thank you for asking and, for the clarification. And, and let me meet you in the middle and acknowledge and agree that Canada... And, and here's what I said the other day. I said this to Jagmeet Singh in our conversation with him. By the way, Green Party leader Annamie Paul will be joining us this week as we continue yeah. our conversations with federal party leaders. But I said this to Jagmeet Singh. My converse, my, my, in my personal opinion... Um, debate over whether or not residential schools represented genocide is over. Mm. Um, I'll, I'll continue to, I suppose, maybe kind of sort of hear people out that want to argue, but I, I, I will certainly ask, as I have over the weekend to a few folks on Twitter that are keeping coming at me, you know, you know, whether or not this is a mass grave or a cemetery, like what are the semantics that you are you're digging in your heels on that? Like, who are you seeking to defend here? Uh, Read the room, uh, as you tell professional communicators. I, I, I don't understand that part. We cannot ignore that this is a significant part of our history. Yes. We cannot ignore that is no longer up for debate. The seriousness and the significance of it. Absolutely. I agree with you on that 100 percent. Kirsten says my opinions about Canada Day are always unpopular because I'm not a fan of nationalism. Mm. But this year, especially, I think it's a good time to consider who is excluded I think that's very well said. Allison says my family won't be celebrating. I've been working at educating myself in regards to indigenous history. I was so ignorant to what colonization has done and is still doing to indigenous people. With every new thing I learn, celebrating Canada does not seem appropriate at all. Honey says keep Canada Day, cancel religious holidays, cancel the Queen's control in Canada. Ah! Why didn't I ask Dr. Cindy Blackstock about how she feels about taxing churches? Gah! That's two guests I've missed out on. I should have asked Chuck Meat Singh about the same thing. Well, we can ask anime. Yeah. Oh, she'll. Yeah. I don't know how she'll. Yeah. But we should I, ask. We should ask. Golf. I mean, what we should do is put basically. I mean, that's that to me. That's that. Well, that's a Twitter bowl question first. Maybe we'll do that tomorrow. Yeah. I'd be curious to know where the average person lands on that. I grew, I grew up, <laughs> I've thrown this out on the radio a couple times, just as a, as a, as a uh, you know, as aspersions of a provocateur, if you will. 
You? And always having grown up, having grown up in, you know, hearing from people, the compelling argument that, hang on a second, people support churches. People support these nonprofits with their after tax income. And it's really not fair to tax churches. And then I don't remember who it was, but somebody basically said to me, we support everything, like absolutely everything with our after tax income. What are you talking about? And I kind of went, right. Oh, yeah. And I got, okay, so I'd be curious to know, you know, what we should do is we should do a round table on on taxing the church and we'll get somebody to say absolutely hell no. And we'll get somebody to say absolutely hell yes. And then we'll maybe get somebody that can sit there and muck it up with me in the middle. Oh, boy. I think that sounds like a good plan. That's my job. I got to find those folks. That's right. (laughs) Get on it, Hoyles. (laughs) I'll buy you some time now by reminding everybody that tunes in that this show, this studio is powered by the team at Westworld Computers for more than 40 years. They've been family owned and operating across Western Canada. Canada, but I'll tell you what, they'll ship anywhere via westworld.ca. Put it this way, if you want to support what we're doing, you can support our partners, and that includes avoiding the Apple Store and going to Westworld Computers at westworld.ca. Their team of technicians is ready to help you out. They've seen it all over 40 years, and if you're picking up a new rig, they'll transfer all your data, whether it's a phone, a MacBook, an iMac, whatever the case, they'll transfer all your data for free. Again, westworld.ca. Also wanted to mention our friends at Sherwood and St. Albert Dodge. We had the Grand Cherokee out this weekend. Absolutely love that rig, but they've got the new one coming out this year with that that third row seating. It's the first seven passenger grand that they've ever done. Plus, of course, if you're a big Jeep fan, I probably don't have to tell you the Grand Wagoneers coming back this year. This this is the big dog. This is the one going up against the big luxury SUVs. Escalade who? The Jeep Grand Wagoneer. You're not going to find a better selection than you will at Sherwood and St. Albert Dodge. Escalade who? Escalade who? Escalade what? With every purchase of a new Grand Wagoneer, an Escalade who bumper sticker from the team at... uh, That last part is not true. That last part is not true. Tell them Jespo sent you, but don't tell them about the free bumper stickers. How's that? Um, This show will swerve from heartbreak to humor right back into heartbreak. And that's what we're going to do right now. Although you may feel more anger now than than you do upset uh, in any other context. That's because uh, Alberta and the rest of Canada is in a full blown opioid crisis right now. But some of the decisions that are being made uh, on the front lines when it comes to supervised consumption services and other services, as well as funding, is being shuffled around in a way that has the experts crying foul. Dr. Jennifer Jackson uh, is an assistant professor in the Faculty of Nursing at the University of Calgary. Uh, She's got her PhD in nursing research out of the Florence Nightingale Faculty of Nursing, Midwifery and Palliative Care at King's College in London. Clara Gorman's an RN, a registered nurse with more than a decade of experience working in harm reduction in both Vancouver and Calgary. Uh, Clara's got a real interest in the intersection of health and justice. Um, She previously held a position with SafeWorks, where she helped open Alberta's first supervised consumption service down in Calgary. Uh, Jennifer and Claire, welcome uh, both of you to Real Talk and thanks for being here. Thanks for having me. Thank you. It's great to be here. Dr. Jackson, why don't don't we start with you uh, before we dig into some of the specifics and assessment of what the opioid crisis looks like in Alberta right now. Let me let me let me point to 
to a number here that, that should be an absolute shock to people. And I hope that it grabs people by the shoulders and gives them a gentle shake. Alberta marking its deadliest year on record in 2020 uh, when it comes to opioid related deaths. One thousand one hundred forty four Albertans dying. That is an 83 percent increase over the year prior. It's really frustrating to be working as a researcher in this space right now because we are seeing horrible outcomes as far as opioids go in our province. So in 2020, more Albertans died from accidental opioid overdoses than died from COVID. And when we think about the public health measures that we've implemented to address COVID, which were all very necessary and very important, but at times, like we all stayed in our homes and, you know, disrupted our work life. Like there was very, very significant action taken to address that crisis. We have more Albertans dying of accidental opioid overdoses. And our policy response has been a whimper at best. And so it's important that we are addressing COVID, but we also need to look at what is killing Albertans and we need to be doing um, a more robust public health response to that. Claire, you were the uh, program coordinator for SafeWorks down in Calgary. Um, talk to anybody that knows you'll be described as instrumental in increasing access to harm reduction services in Calgary. Access to those services is set to change. Uh, for people that aren't familiar with the story, can you take us into the details? Yeah, so... Um News came out that apparently um, SafeWorks Supervised Consumption Service, the only one in Calgary, is going to close and apparently two community sites are going to open. There is absolutely no news or knowledge or information about where these other community sites would go, who would operationalize them, how many booths they would have, what kind of services would be available or who would actually implement this work. And so um, it sounds like the the transition would happen down the road, but the timelines are also unknown. And this is extremely concerning um, because supervised consumption services rely on building trust and relationships with the clients that they serve. And to have this level of chaos and uncertainty um, fuels mistrust. Uh, it fuels chaos in, in people's lives that are already destabilized in many ways. And it, you know, really, I think, speaks to the systematic um, defunding and closure of life-saving services in this province. And at a time when, you know, just in the first three months of 2021, we've lost 369 Albertans to this crisis. Like, that's completely unacceptable. Claire, I had I had a chance to talk to a, a friend uh, who's uh, an Edmonton firefighter uh, just a few days ago, as a matter of fact, and uh, he was just coming off a night shift. And um, I, I always have mixed feelings about as these are some of my closest friends asking them how how the shift was, uh, because oftentimes it's a very loaded question. Um, he he looked tired and he told he said, you know, I, I kind of didn't hear his full sentence. He kind of murmured a bit and he said we responded to 11 overdoses. And I said, you responded to 11 overdoses in one shift. He said, no, we responded to 11 overdoses in half a shift in six hours, 11 overdoses in six hours. 
And I said, is that unusual? He said, oh, yeah. He said, we're responding to way more every single year. He said, but this is off the charts. I said, do you think a bad batch? He goes, I don't know. I mean, he's, he's a first responder. He doesn't know. Uh, they may suspect that. But what's going on, do you think? I mean, it's a tainted drug supply that we have right now in lots of ways. And it's only been exacerbated by COVID. Um, border closures and police seizures mean that drugs that were previous on, previously on the market that were maybe a bit safer or more predictable have become wildly, wildly unpredictable. And the challenge with this is that, um, you know, the this government has has said over and over that the response to this is to improve addiction services. But the harms related to substance use right now can happen whether or not someone is living with substance use disorder. And so putting all of our eggs in, into the recovery basket and, and thinking that addiction services will solve a drug poisoning crisis is false. This isn't going to work. We need a, a drug overdose and, and drug poisoning uh, response that is an emergency response in this province. Um, we cannot wait for downstream interventions to happen. We have to address what's happening right now. And, you know, I'm not surprised that your friend had this experience when um, Alberta Health Services put out an alert in Edmonton last week. They had 55 EMS and, and emergency response overdose, um, to overdose in two days. Like it's off the charts. And we saw this trend last summer. So it's it's not shocking um, or surprising rather, but it's it's heartbreaking. And and we should all be angry and we should all be looking to respond. Dr. Jackson, you know, you, you talk to people about this and, and, and oftentimes maybe not, not not experts. OK, let me clarify. When I say talking to people, I'm talking about general citizens that have opinions on things like supervised consumption services, harm reduction, safe supply, decriminalizing narcotics, whatever the course of the conversation is. And, and, and oftentimes you'll hear people say, well, there are different approaches. You know, people recommend different approaches uh, on, on Wednesday of this past week on on June 2nd. The province announced a new set of quality standards for supervised consumption sites across the province. Under the new standards, the uh, sites will be required to follow a series of requirements in order to receive a license to practice, including data collection, staff qualifications, um, site requirements like like washrooms. Um, they'll need to ensure the safety of clients. Sites will be able to uh, clearly demonstrate referral options as well for clients to receive addiction treatment. Um, how would you assess the new measures? Do you think they will harm or hinder or help efforts to meaningfully address this opioid crisis? Uh, they will harm efforts, there's no question. So putting barriers between a client and accessing a service is the absolute wrong thing to be doing right now. So we want to make it as easy as possible for people to access services that are potentially life-saving and also well-proven within the medical community to create significant benefit. And so even efforts to say like, you need to have your Alberta health card and you need to present um, those credentials to access the service. For people that are using a, what is currently an illegal substance, they could very rightfully be concerned about, well, does this mean that someone's gonna look at my health record and then decide that I should be going to jail or something along those lines. So as echoing what Claire said, that 
Harm reduction services are based on trusting relationships and establishing those trusting relationships. And so now imposing these additional barriers and sort of creating, addressing a problem that doesn't really exist is not something that is going to help our approach to this. And these policy decisions from um, our current government are very, I find them very difficult to try and understand. So when I look at knowing we have a conservative government, I'm thinking of conservative policies. So if we are looking from a libertarian perspective, we want small government, that's not what we're seeing here. We're getting um, residential treatment um, options emphasized and people needing to provide more documentation. This is restricting people's rights and freedoms and increasing the size of government in this space. If we're thinking about the tough on crime folks, we know that harm reduction services can decrease crimes, particularly IO, we have good evidence to show that the crime, um, people commit fewer crimes when they are getting the type of healthcare that they need. Um, if we're getting the efficiency and fiscal responsibility folks, you know, how much is each of these um, fire responses or EMS responses to overdoses, how much is that costing our province versus um, what kinds of services could we be providing that could offer more upstream and cheaper solutions? Hey, Jennifer, can I can I can I jump in for a sec, though, because like, let's hear the real talk. You and I know you and I both know that that the, the compelling and relevant argument here for a lot of people should be because this is their this is the parameter or this is the lens through which they view almost all of their political. Uh, this is where people find their political standing, their political beliefs are based around fiscal responsibility right and and budgets and bottom lines and you've touched on something very important here which is that it is way more expensive way more expensive to be sending out ambulances and fire trucks and and triaging people in ERs and all these types of things um than it is to maintain supervised consumption but there's something else at play isn't there there's a moral and ethical belief that these are junkies and addicts and that we're they want us they're going to bring their illegal drugs into a government funded center and we're going to we're going to you know host and pay for these drug dens and we're going to allow people to break the law and that right there's all of a sudden, the idea about bottom line fiscal responsibility has almost no relevance if people are going to be honest. It's about something else, isn't it? It is really frustrating because because these policies just don't they don't make sense. <laughs> and and even if you have people that are if there are some folks that are more socially conservative, you know, providing life-saving treatment could be viewed as a pro-life option. If that's the way somebody wants to look at these issues, that lens is available there. And I think that this goes to show deeply ingrained biases that we can really push back against. So we're reckoning as a country with um, how we treat our Indigenous people. And we know that Indigenous Canadians disproportionately um, represent the clients for harm reduction services in Alberta. It's Pride Month right now. LGBTQ plus folks disproportionately a larger number of the population um, of people who use harm reduction services. And so fundamentally, we have to care about other people. Most people who are accessing these services have had challenging and traumatic and chaotic lives. And it's not 
our role to judge whether or not they should deserve health care. It's to provide services that save lives. And I think we have a legal, moral and ethical responsibility to do that. 100 um, percent. If I can just jump in, Ryan, I, you know, just in terms of that ideology and where we're seeing the conversation, I think it's really important to acknowledge that we are saturated in a world and a society that has criminalized drugs and has pushed a war on drugs. And I think the three of us here grew up with the rhetoric, um, just say no, drugs are bad. And what comes of that is people who do drugs are bad. And we live in a society here in Alberta that is very bootstrap oriented. You know, we, there's a lot of individual and personal responsibility put on people, including, um, you know, regarding substance use. And we know that the social and structural determinants of health play a huge role in health outcomes for people across the world. Um, and so a really important social and structural determinant in this crisis is the war on drugs, is the criminalization of drugs. And the war on drugs and criminalization of drugs started with racist drug policy. The Indian Act that prohibited the sale of alcohol to status Indians was the first drug prohibition in this country. And it was followed by the Opium Act, which you know, was a, a way of policing um, Chinese railway workers. Like our, our system is rooted in a history of racism. And as we face the reckoning that is residential um, schools here in this country, I think that's a really important part to bring forward to our current crisis in terms of how we're seeing overdose deaths play out in our country. And Claire, you know what's brutal? Uh, or let me say, you know what else is brutal? Is 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 not only uh, the uh, systemic racism that demands to be addressed as, have you, as you have so uh, articulately laid out, but also the fact that it seems as though we need to remind people that even affluent white people in the suburbs are overdosing and that's why we should care like there's just kind of have you noticed that like you have people have to start saying hey i mean keep in mind you know a ceo that had a bad knee injury that got addicted to pain medication could also be one of those that's sourcing out their own self-medication on the streets and then all of a sudden people go wow like it's not just inner city houseless indigenous people wow and then people are supposed to start caring it's it's like this bizarre you know we have to we have to we can't say like these are human beings this is somebody's son or daughter this is somebody's sibling uh that 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 is you know risking um a horrific death every time they use a loan or every time whatever the case may be and that sort of doesn't resonate with people we have to start saying like hey and by the way like it makes fiscal sense and and also white people are dying and then all of a sudden people go this is a crisis I think that's really human nature for any issue is that unless we see the relatability to ourselves, it's, it's really hard for people to care or get on board. And I, I mean, that's the stigma of substance use. And that's what the war on drugs has done is, you know, it made drugs scary and it made drugs something that we're supposed to be afraid of. And so how we react to fear as human beings is to say, oh, that's something that only happens to those people over there. We other the issue. And, and by othering, othering the issue, we create stigma and discrimination within this issue. And a huge part of this is the stigma of substance use. And, and you know, even for that CEO in the suburbs, there's a huge amount of stigma to overcome to seek help or resources or, um, 
you know, disclose substance use and especially substance use disorder. Um, but what we see in our criminal system is that the criminal system treats people who have jobs and homes very differently than people who don't. And it's the policing of poverty and it's the policing of public substance use for folks who don't have a private place to use and don't have a home to use in that is contributing to the harms of this crisis. And that's why supervised consumption services are so important. They're a place where it's it's not criminalized to use substances, where people can come into a, a safe, clean, hygienic environment to use their substances. They don't have to rush behind a dumpster. They're not afraid they're going to be arrested as they use. They can take their time and they can access resources. They can build a relationship with a peer support worker or a nurse or a paramedic. They can begin to build relationships with other clients in the space. They can begin to access other services that bring stability to their lives that they don't otherwise have. And putting any sort of like chaos or uncertainty into these services does a huge, huge amount of harm um, to the folks who are accessing them. Uh, we've had conversations. I mean, Dr. Jackson, you've been on the show before. Uh, Dr. Elaine Hishka has been on the show. Dr. Hakeek Varani. We've spoken my brother, Kyle, uh, who works at, at Insight uh, in Vancouver. We had Garth Mullins on the show who does this amazing the, the Crackdown pod. People have to read it to it. The guy's just a phenomenal storyteller. Um, and, and we hear, I mean, what I want to do here is make sure that we advance the conversation, kind of time stamp, stamp this interview and help people understand what's happening right now. Because what I'm guilty of doing right now as we speak live right now in this interview is I, I'm bringing this back to a conversation where we're all agreeing on stuff. And these are conversations that you'd say, well, did they have this conversation in 2019 or in 2021? It's tough to know. So what's new here? I mean, with regards to what's going on right now, with regards to why people are sounding the alarm, aside from the fact that deaths are up 83 percent last year over the year previous and if the, and if and if those numbers continue to rise, I mean, you know, it's going to be I mean, if it's not already unignorable. But right now, what do people need to be focusing on? Uh, Dr. Jackson, maybe you first. I think that it's important to see that there is a sustained lack of policy response from the provincial level and that it, it has always been concerning, but it continues to be concerning and. I know that Albertans have a lot of different concerns about um, many issues happening in our province, but I think that it is very critical that we recognize we're not getting good leadership and people are dying as a result of that. And it's important to me to share some of these different perspectives because um, as a registered nurse, as Claire is as well, you know, as soon as you say something is evidence-based and life-saving, like we're on board, but I recognize that there's lots of different perspectives in our province and hopefully that by demonstrating these issues, A, they're not going anywhere, they're getting worse, and B, they affect a lot of different elements of our social structures. Hopefully people will find something that resonates there to realize that, you know what, even if you have never smoked a cigarette and you see this issue as being, you know, over there, something that's not connected to yourself, well, the emergency department wait times are going to get longer and the ambulance wait times are going to get longer. And that affects every one of us. So if nothing else, like let that be concern and a reason to say we need to have better strategies and better policies because this sustained 
attack on harm reduction services is completely contrary to the stated policy that we want a continuum of care or a continuum of services available. Actions speak louder than words. There's no continuum. They're trying to push people towards a very narrow range of options that have questionable scientific basis and are causing more deaths in our province. Yeah, I mean, Albertans should remember that the associate minister here of, of mental health and addiction, Jason Luan, is on the record suggesting that the opioid crisis is is something that's been cooked up by big pharma. I mean, we've got conspiracy theories coming from the desk of the associate minister here on, on the Real Talk live chat on our YouTube channel. Ewan, um, who I happen to know, I'll recognize that name jumps out at me because Ewan's been an amazing advocate for businesses in support of harm reduction. And, and Claire, maybe we'll get you to comment on that in just a second. But Ewan watching this morning live says abstinence based recovery has almost no supporting evidence behind it. Uh, meanwhile, there has never been a death recorded in a supervised consumption site worldwide UN says dead people do not recover and there's some very powerful testimony from Jerry uh, Jerry watching live this morning says this conversation is really hitting close to my heart my three girls haven't seen their dad in more than six years he has an opioid addiction and he's currently homeless in Calgary and we haven't heard from him in six months Jerry says harm reduction services are important to him. So one day, maybe my girls can have their dad back. They're important that he stays alive. The Alberta government announcing that it will close Calgary's central supervised drug consumption site. As mentioned, uh, Claire, you were the program coordinator there at SafeWorks. Um, They say that they'll replace it with two other services in the city that approved uh, by Jason Kenney's cabinet on Wednesday. Per a release from Alberta's Associate Minister of Mental Health and Addictions, Jason Luan, quote, we will be relocating the existing site, which has been highly disruptive to the neighborhood and instead add supervised consumption capabilities within two existing facilities situated in more appropriate locations Uh, at that time, declining to offer specifics. It's worth noting that Last year, almost 54,000 people, 53,725 people used the SafeWorks site. Can I ask you to comment on, on, on the highly disruptive to business angle here on the bigger picture of businesses and whether or not they tend to support or fight against supervised consumption services? Well, I mean, I, I participated in the town halls as part of the review panel. I, I sat through both of them here in Calgary and heard from people who were vocal against the service um, and people who supported the service. And we hear a lot from the vocal minority who are pushing back against the service in their community. It's a very small group. Um, The work that uh, you mentioned that UN's taken on with each and every is a coalition of businesses that have um, stated their support for harm reduction and are actually getting naloxone kits right into their businesses. And there's 42 <laughs> supporting businesses in Calgary. I mean, and this project was launched not that long ago. Um, and, and many of which are downtown. I think over half of them are actually downtown. And a few of them actually stones throw from the supervised consumption service. So we know that there's support because businesses know that when there's supervised consumption services, they're less likely to find needle debris People are using inside the site, they're not using in the business's back alley. Um, And they're less likely to find people dead or overdosing. 
I mean, how horrific is that to show up to work and someone's dead in your doorway? Like that is not what will serve the community. And so recognition of the importance of these services is coming along and there's more and more support that we're hearing. Um, and I'm really glad to, to finally hear from the business community that does support these services and that there's a way for them to come together. So certainly each and every is an important initiative. And if there's businesses out there looking to get involved, there's lots of opportunity for that. For our friends that are listening to this on our podcast, uh, welcome. And we appreciate you being here. You may not have seen it, obviously, on the screen like our viewers on YouTube have. You can check out eachandevery.org, eachandevery.org. Jennifer, do you have do you have room for for debate around, you know, what if we're talking about funding big picture, like what ratio should go toward supervised consumption? What what ratio should go toward, um, you know, inpatient help, uh, recovery clinics, um, you know, uh, so-called detox centers? Because I know that, you know, the average person might say, well, what's wrong with funding detox centers or what's wrong with funding recovery clinics that sounds to me to be sort of a logical thing to fund and they may not have a a serious problem with it i'm curious to see even i mean do you see an angle on this that that might indicate a government looking to assist privatized services i mean is that part of what you're focusing on so we know that every dollar we spend in the community we save a lot a lot of dollars in the hospital so my political practice background is in the emergency department and the intensive care unit, otherwise referred to as the expensive care unit. And we know that a visit to a supervised consumption service in Alberta can cost 30 to $60. Um, a visit to the emergency department is $1,100 walking in the door, no matter what you're there for. So that when, when we look at my research in health systems and how do we create systems that work, we want to shift as much care as possible to community-based services. And, you know, if people want to pay for going to like a spa type of retreat and that's how they want to approach their recovery, I would, you know, I would support their right to do so, but recognize that that might not be appropriate for the majority of people. And I think that some of those types of services work if you have a home and a family and, a, you know, quite a bit of stability to go back to when you leave those types of facilities. If you don't have those things in place, which some folks don't, then, you know, they may have what some could say is a measure of success in that type of service. And then say, okay, now you're going back to emergency shelter housing and like, good luck sustaining your recovery. So I think we need to put money into the community. You know, that's been said for decades, like the Romano report in the early 2000s clearly had a pillar that we need to shift where we provide health services to the community. Because we know that if we can keep people out of the hospital, they have better outcomes, we save money. And then there's capacity in the system for when we have things like COVID or when there's, you know, disasters and that type of thing. So, in terms of a ratio of how you spend the money, um, there's dispute about this, but I think generally the push needs to be services in the community. And the supervised consumption is a great example of a place where you build relationships in the community and that can act as a pathway for people to access other services. Maybe they want to look at 
um, engaging with a methadone program or the injectable opioid program. Maybe they do want to consider um, a residential service or something where you stay overnight for a period of time. They can get to those options, but it's the relationships in the supervised consumption that help them do that. So I would just say any, any money we can spend in the community and any services we can build in the community, it takes pressure off of our other services. And that's good all the way around. I want to keep I, I feel like I want to like ring a cowbell every time that that either of you points out, uh, you know, the, the reality of a, of a community hub or a health hub. And you keep talking about these relationships and these inroads. And, and, and Claire, maybe I should have opened with this 40 minutes ago or 30 minutes ago when we started talking. But I mean, you've seen it. You know, you've, you've seen it at SafeWorks at, at the Sheldon Schmier Center and, and, and I've heard about it from my brother and others and, and people that work in supervised consumption uh, about these relationships and how important it is. And we talk a lot about the high level stuff and the statistics and the funding and the legislation and the policy and the ideology and everything that goes along with it. But at a real ground level, at a real community level, can you explain to us how that hub works? And, and can you maybe talk respecting privacy, obviously not using names or anything like that, about maybe an example of I'm sure right now, as I'm asking you, probably somebody's story is coming to mind, a success story, what you would deem to be in addition to keeping somebody alive, a success story, so to speak, of supervised consumption. It's actually hard to think of just one hmm. because there's many. And, um, you know, folks walk in the door, whether it's supervised consumption. I've, I've also worked at a nonprofit um, harm reduction based youth service in Vancouver. People walk in the door not knowing what to expect, not knowing if they're going to face the judgment and discrimination that they have faced in other health or social services. And when they're welcomed with open arms, when they're told they're not going to be judged there, when they can be open and honest about their substance use and whatever else is going on in their lives, um, there is so much potential for so much good. And to create a space that's open and welcoming um, means that it cannot be riddled with medical protocol. It cannot be a place where um, the first person you see is a security guard. It, it cannot be a place that is highly regulated and protocol driven. It has to be human driven in order for any of these successes to happen. And, and I've seen that play out many times, you know, when someone comes in and they're not sure about accessing the service and you can say, hey, come on in, let's have a chat. The first thing you ask them is their name. Uh, you introduce yourself, you build a therapeutic relationship and you do it in a really trauma informed way. And my major concern with these new regulations that came out this week is that it further implements protocol and rules. And as Dr. Jackson said, you know, asking people for their care card number, these are barriers to building that relationship. Um, and, you know, when we look at these services, they need to be community and relationship based. And I'm and really person centered. And I'm concerned that these regulations are actually more about giving government control and power than they are actually about improving quality. Because if they were about improving quality, the words trauma-informed would be somewhere in that document, and they're not, even, even though there's a whole section on staff training. There's nothing about being trauma-informed. There's nothing about being client or patient-centered. 
And that's what we need to see in these services in order for these relationships to be built and for people to have success. And, and to me, success is when someone um, tells us, like, I'm glad to be here. And no matter what that health outcome is for them, whether it's, it's abstinence-based recovery, whether it's calling their mom for the first time in 10 years, like, th- that's, a, that's a measure of success to me. Um, and, and it's just, it's entirely heartbreaking to see that these services have to fight for themselves over and over and over, that they're vilified, that the staff and the service are vilified in the work that they do. When it's so relational, they invest so much and they work so hard to improve people's lives and improve our communities and improve the wellness that we see throughout our cities and, and communities across this whole province. Mark's watching live says, you know, the problems, these issues are going to be worse without supervised consumption. I mean, would you rather have needles at a supervised consumption site or in a park without a so-called safe consumption site? We need to remember, said Mark, will end up with an unsafe consumption site. You know, you and chimes back in, says, you know, things that are, you know, highly disruptive to the neighborhood says it's like one or two businesses that have been extremely vocal. It's a false narrative. We've got like 50 supporting businesses in Calgary alone. Joan says, hey, Ryan, you know, um, this move by Edmonton City Council to allow drinking alcohol in parks is a slap in the face as the government is closing supervised consumption sites. I mean, Joan's, you know, I mean, it's an interesting kind of a parallel narrative different levels of government different decisions all those types of things i suspected if the city of edmonton was making its own decisions on supervised consumption you would see it robustly funded and evidence informed um but we don't even need to talk about drinking in parks i mean every single bar is a supervised consumption service right i mean jennifer the the uh the difference i know some people's heads will explode with the comparison but i don't see how it's an unfair one uh, the difference in how we view a bar versus a supervised consumption service where where people may use drugs i mean you know we, we act like there's a huge chasm between the two but really they're one in the same i think they are and you know i think of every time where a parent says, okay, we'll have, you know, the, the young hockey players or, you know, whomever. We'll have those high school students, they can come over to our house and we know that they're going to drink so they can have a few drinks in the basement while they watch the hockey game. And that way everybody's safe. And we know that, you know, the parents will come and drive them home and we can kind of keep an eye on them. And, and, you know, that is a measure of harm reduction. And so we've seen that these policies are very valuable. Like cannabis was illegal in Canada a couple of years ago. And now it's, you know, I don't want to speak for, I know there's lots of different perspectives, but essentially now it's like not that big a deal. And there's things in place that make sure that the cannabis people are using the same and, you know, taking it out of the hands of organized crime, giving people access um, on their terms. And, you know, where we put that line of legal or illegal is arbitrary. And that's based entirely on policy decisions. And so there's no reason that we can't use policy decisions to expand the services we're offering around harm reduction. And the more I work in this space, the more I see that that needs to include a full legalization and um, provision of all substances. So we know people aren't getting like toxic garbage off the street. We can actually predict what's in it and make sure that those services are safe. 
Now that's not saying we market in a blanket way that you could buy heroin at the pharmacy or something. You know, there's a lot of nuance to this that, you know, I can go into, but I think we need to look and say what we are doing, as Claire spoke so clearly, we've been trying these different types of, you know, prohibition and um, these different racist policies like throughout our history and the war on drugs is perhaps the best example, but like this does not work. We need to have a vision for new ways of moving forward. And, you know, I want a community where even if that's not something that I personally um, want to use or engage with, that that's available because I care enough about my fellow citizens that I want to make sure those things are in place. I think it's also important to say, you know, as a harm reduction advocate, I don't want to live in an area of increased crime. I don't want to live in an area where there's people on the ground. People have a right to have legitimate concerns, but those are areas where we can do research and we can do things that help to make modifications and improvements that are actually based on evidence. So I'm working on starting up a project on needle debris, partnering with the city of Calgary. Are there ways that we can try and address that issue through different strategies within our city? This is a problem that we can solve. It's not a reason to shut the whole thing down and think that that'll make it go away. Um, because that we've seen over and over and over again, that just does not work. I appreciate Barb uh, tagging me in a tweet that uh, drives me to, I, I know Kim Seaver is uh, like an independent journalist, a citizen journalist of the southern part of the province. Um, you can check out kimseaver.cac. He's just published this story. As a matter of fact, it looks like this morning, um, Lethbridge drug deaths doubled in the first quarter of 2021. Uh, this, of course, uh, significant, number one, because these are human beings that we're talking about. But number two, because in, in Lethbridge, I think most people that pay attention to politics in Alberta will remember that Arches, uh, which was the agency there, the supervi- operating the supervised consumption service down uh in the southern part of the province, a very busy one, by the way, was Arches uh, closed down after there were allegations of financial mismanagement. I know there's a lot of different opinions around that. That's one of the sites that have closed. Lethbridge saw 16 substance related deaths during the first three months of this year. That's up from eight during the same period the year before. I'll also point out that in Edmonton, the Boyle Street supervised consumption site is is to remain closed. Uh, the George Spady site will keep expanded hours. And, and I know there was a heartbreaking story of of at least three people, um, three people who experienced overdoses uh, at or near where a former site had been open. I mean, these these are these are real life people. These are also, I think, um, I don't want to say metaphors, but you know what I'm saying. They're 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 indicative of the bigger picture. It's people are saying, look at this. You know, A plus B equals C. This this then this. You know, one plus one is two, sort of a thing. So Claire, as 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 we get set to wrap here and thank the both of you for your time and your expertise uh, people looking to take something away from the citizens that go I, I heard all that and the information was really helpful and my my heart's broken or my blood pressure's elevated or i'm quite frankly i'm feeling pissed off right now but i'm not quite sure what to do about it or i want to know what i can control in my own life what's something you would give us to walk with and to think about and to take action on yeah, I mean, what's really telling and concerning to me, Ryan, is that um, Minister Luan called the Alberta model successful just two weeks ago. It, it, and to say that with this level of death and grief and hurt in our communities is is 
I mean, very telling. And so what I would implore people to do is to call on government for a coordinated, collaborative, multi-sector response to this, the way we've seen with COVID. We have an equal crisis and a syndemic on our hands. You know, both of these crises really coming together to make things really horrific. And we need a response. Where is public health? Where are the press releases? Where are the, the news um, newscasts? Where, where are the public health measures? Um, where are the standing committees? Where are the task force? We have not seen a response. And so I would ask your viewers and listeners to call on their government for that response, to call on public health. And in the meantime, carry an naloxone kit. Um, go to your pharmacy, they're available for free. Um, you don't have to provide a, a PHN for a naloxone kit, but you might for a supervised consumption service. Um, get a kit, know how to use it, carry it on your person. This crisis is not going away anytime soon. And in the absence of a government that cares about its citizens, we need to care for one another. I, w- I want to point out I, I was I was encouraged by somebody that reached out. I was I, I tweeted something about this over the past couple of days and, and this gal reached out and said, uh, you know what I'm going to do? She said, I'm going to go to my pharmacy. One thing I can do she said, I'm going to go to my pharmacy and buy a naloxone kit. And I was thrilled to tell her that you don't have to shell out for them at all, that they are free. I know because I have one. The nurse, um, as they are obligated to do, which makes perfect sense as they hand them out to you, they'll give you a quick primer on how to use it. Um, you know, should heaven forbid you have to. Um, and it was really neat to hear how some people have you know cleared space in their purses or their attache cases or i know there are some weather sensitivities i tweeted this and learned a lesson earlier middle of the winter in edmonton you don't want to keep your naloxone kit in your glove box but at least during the summer at least to get started at least to get in the do i use the word habit of carrying one with you um it's it's it could save a life i know that there are businesses that have one i talked to one friend that works at a downtown business in edmonton they proudly have a naloxone on site sticker on the front window of the business it's it's almost like maybe it's a weird comparison. Maybe not. I think of those block parent stickers from back in the day. It's a sticker that's up in your window saying, I value your life and your safety, complete stranger. And I'm here for you if and when you need me. So Claire's laid this out with regards to government and with regards to what the public can demand. And and Jennifer, a, a hot potato for you as we wrap. Do you fear that this government fighting the polls right now having some popularity issues and really working hard to retain its base. Do you fear that the politics here and the ideology that we've already discussed around so-called illegal drug use and addiction and all these types of things, do you think ultimately that that might stand in the way of meaningful action on this? Do you think that this could be more of a political problem in Alberta, maybe more than anywhere else in Canada? Well, it could be, but it could also not be because we've seen that this government responds to political pressure. And so my call to action to people who are watching today would be to write to your elected officials, whether that's your city councilor, the local mayor, the reeve in your community, your MLA and your MP, and take a few minutes and say, I vote and I care about this. And that type of pressure works. We know that that makes a difference. You can also, I think it's incumbent on all of us to look within, are you using language like addicts, crackheads, that type of thing. We need to change that language and reflect on our own biases. 
you know, we can say people who use drugs in a way that's not as stigmatizing as, you know, labeling someone a crack addict that take, totally takes away their humanity. And so we can take political action by engaging with our policy leaders. We can reflect on maybe some work we need to do ourselves about our attitudes and approaches um, to these issues. If you're a business owner, contact each and every. If this is something you're supportive of, get in touch with them and see if this is something that maybe you want to lend some more formal support. And otherwise, I know there's lots of issues that people are um, have expressed concern about, whether it's the curriculum, um, whether it's coal mining. We've seen a huge groundswell of support, and I would encourage people um, you've gotten some practice of political action with those activities and to just keep it going because, uh, you know, when we think of democracy, government of the people, and uh, I think that every politician worth their salt knows that their constituents and their voters are the ones that they need to get That's Dr. Jennifer Jackson, Claire O'Gorman as well. Look forward to convening with the two of you when, when, when we're through all of this, this, this pandemic and, and, and having you in studio and furthering the conversations about this and thanking you both in person for your advocacy. Thanks for spending a portion of your morning with us today. It's an important conversation, and I can tell it's resonating with our audience. I'm looking forward to this podcast going out this afternoon. Thanks again. Thank you. And remember, you can follow these two on Twitter. I encourage you to do so. I feel like I learn something new every single day. Um, Dr. Jackson, of course, uh, making her return here to the show. And that, that was Claire's debut. Um, I appreciate those of you that are tagging us on Twitter, of course, using the hashtag Real Talk. RJ Morea is watching this morning and she says, Ryan, here's all you need to know uh, about the uh, drug crisis, the opioid crisis in Edmonton and, and directs me toward this tweet from a family doctor who tweets at T-Rex MD. 780, the area code up here in Edmonton, one of them anyway. T Rex MD 780 says, I spent my weekend trying to treat some of the most complex opioid withdrawals I've ever seen. And I was so terrified that if they left, they would die. The drugs are so dangerous out there. We need help. This is out of control. The doctor goes on to tag Associate Minister Jason Luan, Health Minister Tyler Shandro, the Premier. Opposition, uh, MLA David Shepard, opposition leader Rachel Notley, MLA Lori Sigurdsson, MLA Janice Irwin, the chief medical officer of health, right? Dr. Dina Hinshaw, the government of Alberta's official Twitter health account. The doctor goes on to say, I don't even know, honestly, this is just an hour ago. I don't know what tagging ministers and critics will do, but I spent 72 hours scrambling my brain this weekend, and this is all I could come up with, a desperate plea on Twitter. If we don't start to work together on the opioid crisis now, we are lost. This is a nonpartisan issue issue in case you missed it says the doctor there were calls for 55 overdoses in two days 55 this is why faces haunt me when they leave against my medical advice because that is what they are walking out into the community to face right I mean, there's bigger conversations, too. I mean, I've, I've spoken with Kyle before, my brother, Kyle Jesperson. You can s- search our archive, uh, whether you're listening on the podcast, whether you're finding us on YouTube, uh, you'll be able to find that interview. Kyle talks about, I mean, I mean, there, there are even services, you know, part of what a supervised consumption site uh, will offer, even testing drugs 
right to tell if there's you know these fentanyl overdoses and it's it's really when you talk to the experts and and like the chemists and and those that can explain fentanyl and the power and car fentanyl and everything that people are dealing with here and and you come to understand why this is so so dangerous you know back in the days of when we were talking about you know pablo escobar and the the cocaine coming in from colombia and other south and central american countries and 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 coming up through the states or whatever the case may be and these these massive shipments interrupt uh intercepted right and we're familiar with the you know the shots of those police officers or the the border control officers the customs officers standing and they've you know they've seized like a pallet of of these bricks of blow right just a pallet hundreds of pounds this car fentanyl fentanyl in in some circumstances in many circumstances coming in from china and other countries i remember one expert describing to me in an interview that a pencil case sized amount of car fentanyl has the power to kill a million people a pencil case size it's much easier to smuggle and it's much more difficult to intercept so the whole nancy nancy reagan idea of like just say no to drugs or dare to say no to drugs it's not working it's never worked america has been losing the war on drugs for years canada has an undeniable opioid crisis it's the other health epidemic so of course you don't have to stretch too far you don't have to work too hard to make the argument that things like testing drug supply makes sense it's a negligible cost it's a public health service as you continue to to first of all work to keep people alive and also to create those relationships at these community hubs these supervised consumption services now kyle told me you know the power of addiction is so strong that in some circumstances people would be informed that the drugs that they had procured the drugs that they possessed that they had with them that they were bringing in would be contaminated would have a dangerous amount of fentanyl or carfentanil in them and i said so what would happen in those circumstances and he would say people would still use the the power here is immense and enormous but they're going to use either way so it's either going to be in a doorway or behind a dumpster with zero dignity with zero safety or at a supervised consumption service, which is seems to me to be the approach that a, a decent, empathetic, reputable jurisdiction might have. You can let me know what you think about this. I understand for a lot of people, the issue is black and white. I understand for some people, there's a lot of nuance. I think the conversation is why we hone in on that in in. in You know, these discussions like the one we just had around harm reduction and what that looks like, the the role that counseling or detox opportunities or inpatient recovery should play. I think these are important stories. And and oftentimes we know that that the anecdotes that we receive can be very powerful. People's firsthand stories like that audience member that was talking about her husband, the father to her three children that is experiencing such hardship down in Calgary an opioid addiction and, and experiencing homelessness. These are powerful stories and you can send them into talk at ryanjesperson.com. We always want to know how you feel and what you're making of the stories and the conversations that you're hearing here on the show. Shay with an interesting point says it's time to compete with the illegal market from a business perspective. Huh? Recommending. I haven't heard of this book chasing the scream by Johan Hari. 
Jake says, I'd, I'd recommend reading Drugs Without the Hot Air by David Nutt. N-U-T-T says, I learned so much from that book. It was updated in 2020. Hmm. This is, I mean, we have people dying by the dozens. We have people dying by the hundreds uh, in provincial jurisdictions, thousands of Canadians every year losing their lives. It's something that needs to be addressed across different levels of government. At some point, the politics have to leave a scenario. At some point, evidence has to be the only thing that matters. An evidence-based scientific approach to public health delivery. How can you argue with that? Power Ed by Athabasca University offers short online and on-demand professional development courses and certificates, and that includes a course on allyship and inclusion. This is something that we're going to be focusing on a little later this month in the context of our ongoing coverage of Pride Month. You can also develop certification in areas like leadership, digital wellness, project management, artificial intelligence and machine learning. What about digital transformation? Prepare yourself to compete in a new and exciting job market by taking the on-demand learning opportunities that PowerEd provides, assisting organizations as well, by the way, to develop and deploy their own digital learning strategies. You can learn more at powered.ca. It's PowerEd by Athabasca University. How many of you got out into the great outdoors this weekend? We want to remind you that our friends at Campers Village have the best gear for right here. They've got a ton of amazing, useful outdoor gear, including backcountry camping like expedition packs and ultralight tents. What about front country camping? My friends call it car camping. They've got rooftop tents, family tents, heated camp chairs. What? Outdoor showers, even outdoor toilets. Plus, if the cabin, lake, or even the backyard is your destination, they've got propane fire bowls, outdoor furniture, kayaks, canoes, paddles, and more. You'll find it all at Campers Village. Two stores in Edmonton, one store in Calgary, and online at campers-village.com. Campers-village.com. A big, hearty welcome aboard to the Real Talk Builders team to our friends at Campers Village heated chair heated chair i know that was the one where i went heated chair i mean i've i've been heating my chair for for years but that's just sitting too close to the The fire fire. yeah that's how i heat my chair have you seen those amazing chairs that have that are like basically like a recliner they're like are really like they even have like the they're big and puffy but they still break down into like capture qualification oh yeah I was coveting those a couple weekends ago when I was out at a campsite. It's always it's always a delicate. Uh, it's like you got to find that delicate balance. It depends on who you're camping with and the type of gear that you bring. You know what I mean? Because I think if I brought a heated camp chair out with the guys that I camp with, um, I don't I don't know that I'd get away with it. Would I don't you get know. Scoffed? I don't know that I'd I don't know that I'd hear the end of it. Well, I would either. I don't know what would happen. They'd all want one. Camp chairs, camp chairs are a very, uh, it's, it's a very like, uh, you know, people, people, there's a, there's a spectrum of how people believe on camp chairs. I personally am of the thinking that there, there are the camp chairs that you can buy at the big box stores that are, that are always on sale, um, typically around Canada day. See what I'm doing here is I'm teeing up an opportunity for us to revisit our unofficial unscientific Twitter poll in just a second here, everybody. But 
typically on, on, or, you, know, on you know leading up to Canada Day, you'll see these these they're pretty lousy quality but these camp chairs that are like seven dollars or nine dollars and that is my bag that's my thing I think I've I've broken many of broken those. many of those yeah. right but when you break it how much do you care yeah, that's fair seven yeah. bucks worth right like it's a pint in my mind everything is just gauged in how many pints and and look at me and hey to be serious for a quick second joking about alcohol three minutes after a conversation about opioid use nobody's going to judge me about the alcohol comment right nobody's going to judge me about that i digress seven bucks for the camp chair nine bucks for the camp chair it breaks who cares it gets burns in it from sparks or whatever else who really cares Right. But then you have the folks that spend like, you know, I've got a buddy that his camp chair is like it's like a two seater. It's almost like a love seat with like a pull up cooler in the middle. And you've got the foot rest like you're describing the extra padding. Now the heater. You know, I don't think these are seven bucks. I guess, it, you know, it's are you trying to keep up with the Joneses or who are the Joneses and what are the Joneses doing? Or you just don't want to be cold. Well, then build a fire. What are you doing? You know what I mean? I mean, well. I'm not going to judge you. Yeah, that is my whole point is like, why would you buy a chair explicitly for the purpose of sitting next to a fire and then insist that it's heated? Yeah, that I mean, it's no sense. Has, has that ever really been a has that ever? Have you ever really been sitting around a campfire and being like, everything's great, but my ass is freezing? Well, obviously, you're not one of those people that's always cold. I'm, well, no, yeah, that may be fair. Because hello, get a blanket. No, but it's, you know, the front of you is all warm. The back <laughs> Not so much. This is actually really a serious problem that you have when you're camping. This has been. I am always cold. Okay, really? Are you okay? Except for when you're in here. Yeah, except for when I'm in here, I'm sweating buckets. We should we should start telling people. We should start letting our 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 real talkers aware of our studio dynamic. I'm not sure if they are. I'm not sure if they're aware. We won't we won't waste too much time. But maybe every day we could get a a, give a bit of an update on what our studio temperature is because we do have we do have a device here in studio that I look at that tells me the time. The weather report. It's called a clock. But but what it has on it is is it has a thermometer and we are currently at twenty seven point five degrees Celsius in the Real Talk studio. It's chilly in here. And it's it's actually a little chilly in here. What was it Thursday or Friday of last week, Sam? When I congratulated well, like thirty-one or thirty-two, we yeah. hit, we hit, we went record. We, we went over thirty, and we set a new record. Uh, I mean, one of the great things is we're sort of embracing summer here in the Real Talk Studio uh, because it's typically five to eight degrees hotter in the studio than it is outside, and and so uh, yeah, so twenty-seven and a half degrees in here. So this is the one place when you show up to work every day. It's what will keep. It's what will keep you enthusiastic. That's about, right. About waking up at six in the morning every single day, is you get to come in here and not. Be freezing cold job satisfaction you bet hey sarah you know what you're welcome you're welcome <laughs> a studio people are gonna go really 28 degrees really uh i'm our, loving it yeah. i am loving it <laughs> in our unofficial twitter and meantime i'm just like trying to keep my cool in more ways than one every show we host uh today's poll unscientific on twitter obviously unofficial where do you stand on the hashtag that was trending over the weekend cancel canada day we've uh, closing in on 650 votes we'll keep this open we're keeping it open for 24 hours so we got 21 hours left on this uh 20 percent 20 and a half percent we'll call it 20 percent um say they're going to cancel canada day personally uh 43 say that they will celebrate canada day and and about 37 36 and a half percent acknowledge it's complicated now if you combine i mean so you say one in five respondents are saying they're going to cancel canada day okay if you combine those who say they will celebrate canada day or those who acknowledge it's complicated then all of a sudden you're looking at 80 percent four out of five people it's interesting that you're you're grouping that way. 
Because I would say I would group the other way. But yeah. maybe that's my, my, what is that when you talk about like your bias? Oh, a confirmation bias. Confirmation bias. Yeah. So um, it could also just be the fact that statistics are wrong 76% of the time. So <laughs> I don't know. That's like, the, oh, that's like such a dad joke. Yeah. That's a brutal. We should do that maybe like a daily dad joke leading up to Father's Day. Um, but you let me not. Do, you let, do that anyway. Let dude. me not be. <laughs> let me not be. I know I can't help myself. Um, this feels like real life where we where we combine the, the humor and the horror and the heartbreak and, and bring it back to humor. But I don't want to come across as glib and I don't want to come across as I'm mocking the conversation. It's obviously a very important one. So if you combine those that are canceling uh, to your point, those that intend on canceling Canada Day or acknowledge that it's complicated, then you're over half. You know, then you're at like 56, 57 percent, which is also an interesting interpretation. So one in two people, again, unofficial, unscientific, one in two people acknowledge that they either will not celebrate or maybe will celebrate differently or maybe haven't made up their mind yet, acknowledging that it's complicated. You know, me personally, um, to me, my Canada uh, includes and you know I was I, I never had the I never had the uh, the bumper sticker but you remember back in the day my Canada includes Quebec um, and this would be how how Westerners would I, I think just try to kick the hornet's nest in their neighborhoods as they came back home from work my Canada includes Quebec but you'd oftentimes see the the bumper stickers more I think on on vehicles with Eastern plates but but that's something that the young generation may not resonate with I mean are people thinking back or kids thinking back to like you know I mean when you look back on on recent Canadian history, things like, you know, the FLQ crisis or, mm. uh, me, you know, Meech Lake or Charlottetown or all like, and I'm not drawing these all together, but I mean, the, these are things that were formative that depending on your age, these were either big deals or you may have no idea what people are talking about, but, but talking about Canada and people's complicated relationships with Canada and conversations around sovereignty and, and Quebec and Alberta and indigenous people i'm not comparing the three groups but this is nothing new people having complicated relationships with canada day and people maybe with mixed feelings looking at that canadian flag and i think of our approach as a family to canada day for many many years has been to fly every flag we can find <laughs> to pick up every seven dollar red canada flag folding lawn chair that we can procure and to have it out and to celebrate this nation and this year, I will do so, or this year, I will approach that day. Um, and I can tell you this already because it's June 7th and we're like, you know, three weeks away and I've already been wrestling with it and I'm already grappling with it. And I'm grateful to have thousands of other people that are doing the exact same thing because I'm trying to wrap my mind around around what's appropriate. I love this country. I am a proud Canadian. Yesterday, I told you I stood for the anthem by myself as Canada's men's hockey team celebrated gold in overtime at the at the world men's hockey championship at the same time i am appalled by our country's history on a number of fronts including our relationship with indigenous people mm. including how communities were built including how treaties have been disrespected us as treaty partners you remember that language from last month i'm appalled at recent revelations and revelations from ages ago about residential schools I'm I'm I I have uh, I'm all twisted up and trying to learn more about how this country continues to fight indigenous people and, and indigenous advocates in court, and we want to learn more about that, and we want to learn more about abolishing the Indian Act. 
And it feels a little tone deaf right now to unabashedly hoot and holler. I mean, put it this way. I saw a vehicle driving down the street the other day with two car flags, both Canadian flags. Okay. On any other day at any other time, you'd you'd give them a thumbs up or a honk. You know, oh, they're enthusiastic about living here. It's a month ahead of Canada Day and they're already flying the flags. And part of me for the first time ever was standing there waiting to cross the street with my dog on a leash. And I looked at that and I thought, I wonder if that's a comment on Kamloops. I just that that's that was my personal thought. And I wonder if the person driving that car, I wonder if it was a comment on Kamloops. Most of me doubts that it was. Uh, but I wonder if they're if that's even on their radar. And so to me, I mean, Canada Day, I mean, how do I perceive Canada? I warts and all as a country with major flaws. But also, you know, and, and to that audience member earlier that said I'm not big on nationalism, I'm going to come across as, as as pretty pro Canada right now. A country that's done amazing work around the world uh, when it comes to fighting for human rights uh, when it comes to participating as an ally in, in the world wars, when it comes to the bravery shown in peacekeeping missions, when it comes to how Canada steps up and, hey, we need to do better when it comes to sharing vaccines and ensuring that that COVID-19 is meaningfully addressed in countries around the world. And there, there, but there are examples and there are great things and there is much to be proud of when it comes to Canada. But we have and our history has an ugly underbelly that we have to confront. And so I've been thinking about even on a personal level, how do I communicate that this year, that this is on my radar and not just in a way that that means changing your Facebook profile picture to have that orange banner across it. And I'm not making fun of that. And I'm not taking away from that. I think those things are really important. I think it's important to put things on people's radar and to communicate and to take a stand and to plant a flag, so to speak. So when it comes to adorning our front lawn with Canada flags. Is every second flag orange? Or is that a strange thing? Or, or are those incongruous? Is that insulting? Like these are the questions I'm asking. I don't have answers to these questions. This is what I'm wrestling with right now. So I'm in the it's complicated camp. I mean, because I'll sorry to I'll, I'll wrap and I, I'm very genuinely curious how both of you are feeling about this. But but I I am proud to be Canadian, but I am appalled by some significant elements of our history that demand to be addressed in meaningful fashion. I I just like to sit with that. Yeah. Um, and it's totally fine to think that that's a ridiculous perspective and to totally disagree. Just to be clear. Well, so what I'm wearing right now is there's this little uh, medallion. It's actually a Frank from France. Hmm. Um, and it was my, would it be my great great grandfather? He was, he died in the first world war and this is something that he gave his daughter um, when they were living in England while they were, uh, while he was fighting. And so I hold it very dear to me and, uh, I'm not wishing to erase. Uh, obviously I'm not wishing to erase. Like I am wearing this. Um, so the idea of saying cancel Canada day, I don't necessarily even believe in cancel culture. I think that it's about accountability. So what I'm interested in is how can Canada and how should Canada be accountable, not just uh, in words, but in action. And so Canada Day, yeah, it, it's, I think it's a, it would be a really meaningful uh, day to do something different 
and what different is. I think as you've talked about, it's like each individual person is, is going to have to wrestle with that. I also really have appreciated how Canada isn't, you know, flag flying all the time. Uh, You're talking about America. America. Yeah. How they like, they really, and maybe this is really strong language, but this is the word that's coming to me. They weaponize the flag and it becomes, and you see like when it gets burnt other places. Sarah, they literally weaponize the flag. Like you you can buy like, like (laughs) rifle butt covers that are like, you can buy like literally they have weaponized the flag. Yeah. Whereas with Canada, I like that it's not as loaded. Um, No pun intended. Yeah. Um, and I, and I like that. I like that it, it hasn't been, the nationalism hasn't been as strong here. So, yeah, there's taking the good with the bad. But I feel like this year, there needs to be, I would hope there would be more reflection on the day as opposed to just, woo-woo! Yeah, I, gar- I guarantee. Well, I, could, I can only guarantee for myself. Mm. But I guarantee more reflection on Canada Day. How could you not? If, if, if you're not reflecting more on what the flag represents and what a nation represents and what you expect of political leadership and religious leadership and citizen leaders, then then what is it going to take to shake you? If not this year, if not this July 1st, then when? Marco, and I agree with Marco, and let me let me clarify. Marco says, Ryan, the peacekeeping doesn't cancel out the residential schools. Nobody is suggesting that peacekeeping cancels out residential schools, and I agree with you. Lauren says every country has an ugly underbelly, and I know Lauren personally, and I know that Lauren is not suggesting that that means that we don't take it deadly seriously. Karen says, you know, fighting for human rights around the world while fighting human rights fighting indigenous rights in canadian courts is not something to be proud of penny says this is so important the ability to hold up two points of view at the same time and not have your brain blow up penny that's me and i'm grateful that you're here too participating in this conversation (laughs) dylan says i'll be celebrating a day off but thinking about what i want canada to mean going forward and how I can help make that happen. That's beautifully said, Dylan. Heavy D, meantime, calls me to the carpet and says, hey, I'm not so sure how shiny our peacekeeping and foreign aid efforts are. I mean, how much do we tie them up or how much do we tie them to access to markets in those same countries and our political influence? I know a lot of people are talking about right now, Canada selling arms to Colombia. How about Canada selling arms to Saudi Arabia? Two Beaver says Canada Day was originally known as Dominion Day, exercising their dominance. I would almost guarantee I can't guarantee, but I would almost guarantee that Alberta's premier will tweet about Dominion Day on July 1st. He did last July 1st. Mike says, you know, I've had similar thoughts when seeing somebody with just an Alberta provincial flag on their lawn or truck. And both of my both of my colleagues here, both of our producers are nodding like you guys are going to give yourselves a concussion if you nod any more enthusiastically. Um, so I, I have a, I'm, I'm very proud to be from Alberta. And, and oftentimes I'm also very embarrassed to be from Alberta. <laughs> But I will not be chased from Alberta Um, and I will proudly continue to do my best and to do my part like everybody probably that's participating in this show and everybody that's working on this show to remind people that not everybody in Alberta is a prick. 
and uh, I, uh, I, I do have an Alberta flag that flies at our home. And uh, and uh, and I will never take that down. And I'm very proud to have that Alberta flag up. But I know exactly what you're talking about, Mike. When I see a house and, and this is something that's that that, again, is just relatively new. Right. Since 1905. If you saw and, and, and actually I'm getting embarrassed right now by myself. I'm embarrassing myself right now. I don't know the Alberta flag. What you're I don't know. Anyway, I know Alberta became a province in 1905. <laughs> Maybe Sarah can fact check on the fly. I don't actually know. Our, I don't think our flag was out in 1905. Maybe it was. We'll find that out in a quick second. The joys of a live podcast. Sam, just hit pause. We'll cut this out. We'll edit it later. Everybody, no one will ever know. You got it. We'll, we'll just make ourselves sound way more smart. But from like 1905 until recently, Somebody's flying an Alberta flag and only an Alberta flag on their property. You'd be like, damn straight. Way to go. That's awesome. What a beautiful flag. I still feel the same way. What a beautiful flag. 1968. 1968. June 1st is when the flag was adopted. So that's right around the time that the that the new Canadian flag was adopted, too. Wasn't that? Was that 1967? <laughs> Let me Google it. <laughs> Well, 1967 I, was the centennial and the flag was made for the centennial. I think it was adopted a couple years before. Was that, it a couple years before that? Sarah's looking at it up. Sam, there are two points up for grabs right now. Just FYI. So Sam could. Okay. Okay. I'm volunteering 1965. Okay. I'm going to say 67. Totally. Yeah. Totally guessing. And Sarah. Holy smokes. Huh? Sam, Sam over here. Gets 65. It. I believe. Uh, and I hate to say it, Sarah, but I believe that Sam now takes the lead. Uh, the meaningless points lead <laughs> that will accrue toward either of you winning. Absolutely nothing. Um, this is important to know as well. Somebody maybe right now listening to the podcast is going to hey, wait a second. The Canadian flag, it was new in 1965. So what's all this clucking about changing the lyrics to O Canada? I mean, if everything was absolutely sacred for all time in Canada, why didn't people lose their minds when we changed the flag? Maybe some people did. I wonder what 1965 Twitter would have looked like. <laughs> thought it was nasty now. I do find it interesting about the Alberta flag and how it's become loaded now and especially with now all this talk about the equalization referendum and the municipal ballots in October yeah it just it ticks me off because I I was born and raised here and I yeah I I I love Alberta but I also don't like (laughs) some of the sentiment that comes out of this place I'm I mean to use your words embarrassed hmm Sam, do you have a do you have a strong feeling about this? I mean, in, in the context I, I, of you know, cancel Canada Day or, or where your head's at leading up to July first. So, Canada Day for for me has, has always been a family affair. Um, probably around the time that I was born, my grandparents just decided they'd have a Canada Day barbecue every year. And um, the the year that I lived in Toronto, my granddad actually mailed me a gift card so that I could participate in the barbecue and make sure I got the the same, you know, grilled turkey and ribs that they were uh-huh. having. And so all of our best family photos have come out of Canada Day. And, and yeah, there's photos of us all just completely adorned in the red, the red and, and white and, and just like, you know, some some nationalism threw up on us and we're we're having this round old time and but it probably didn't feel at the time like you were making a big statement no, or that it was controversial not one bit. it was uh we get a you know we, this is the beginning of the summer and we're at grandma and granddad's house and we're eating a delicious yeah. barbecued meal and then you know you fast forward to now and and i actually really just like immediately my head went right back to our round table on friday where we talked about pride pride is 
both a celebration and a protest. Mm. And, you know, I will I will quote our esteemed guest, resistance can be joy. And so I think that's a little bit of where I'm shifting with Canada Day is that it, it shouldn't be removed from the calendar, but it should be reframed. And it should be a day for both celebration and reflection because I think that there's also, especially in a nation that is so complicated like this, um, there's a lot of fatigue that comes if you don't take some moments to actually celebrate what you've done. And Canada is so unbelievably imperfect and has such a troubled history and, and all of that needs to be kept front of mind. But we've done great things. And so I think that going into a Canada Day was sort of an, an attitude of both reflection and a little bit of celebration and and trickling that down into the education of how we bring our children to understand Canada Day. That's not just a day off to wave the flag. Yeah. You know, I, that's that's where my head's at right now. Uh, Blake Desjardins chiming in on, on my Twitter poll. Uh, and I encourage all of you to do so. I'd love to see a couple thousand responses so we could bring you that data uh, tomorrow, giving it 24 hours to percolate, so to speak. Blake has, has been on the show before. Um, uh, just a, a brilliant young community leader. I really respect him. Uh, a Métis man. He says he asks me, you know, who's Canada Day for, though? You know, who's it for? He says it certainly doesn't include us. An interesting comment. We're going to take a look uh, tomorrow during tomorrow's show at the results of our most recent question of the week. Um, we asked you about racism in sport and barriers to sport. And we've got some really interesting data. We'll go through that tomorrow morning collectively. Uh, if you're one of our Patreon supporters, we sure appreciate you. Um, you can learn more about supporting us on Patreon at RyanJesperson.com. You already have the top line report. You already have the data um, as compiled by the team at Y Station, our official research and strategy partners. You can check your email for that. I want to direct your attention, though, to this week's question of the week, which is now live on our website at ryanjesperson.com. Uh, easy to find right at the top of the page. You click on it. The discovery of the remains of 215 indigenous children at the site of a Kamloops residential school has shaken our nation, forcing an urgent discussion about how Canada treated and continues to treat our indigenous communities whether we're making sufficient progress on the calls to action of the Truth and Reconciliation Commission and how we should treat the historical figures responsible and indeed how we should treat historical figures in general. We want to get some of that with you this week. In this week's Get Real Question of the Week, we want to know the effect that this has had on your Canadian identity, kind of what we're talking about today, what can be done and how we should think about the people from our history that have participated in these crimes, in this cultural genocide you click the link to respond. It's going to take just a couple of minutes. We're going to do it a little bit differently this week, as opposed to giving you through till Sunday, which we typically do. We're going to treat this one a little bit more urgently. And so on Friday morning, we will be reviewing the results of this data. We've asked the team at Y Station and they've agreed. We appreciate their commitment to fast track this report. So we'll be cutting off the comments and we'll be cutting off this question of the week Thursday afternoon I'm giving you plenty of time to check in ryanjesperson.com again the question of the week we always like to see over a thousand respondents and so we'll ask you to do that uh, maybe right now uh, maybe by the end of today we'd love to see a strong response earlier in the week uh, Sarah it includes as a spoiler alert uh, it includes a question on cancel culture 
And Canadians have been talking about cancel culture again. The conversation has has risen again after Alberta's premier, Jason Kenney, uh, was asked about um, schools, including Langevin School, schools named Bishop Grandin that are carrying that name and in schools across the province. And of course, statues of historical figures like Sir John A. Macdonald, our first prime minister, quite likely the most notable architect of Canada's residential schools. And whether or not he's being canceled. Now, Jason Kenney raised some eyebrows. Some political analysts I've seen have said that it's actually an astute play on his part, considering who he's looking to gain or keep support from, invoking the idea of cancel culture and this call to cancel these great historical figures. Jason Kenney says, without Sir John A. Macdonald, there is no Canada. You're shaking your head. We certainly saw an interesting situation with a statue being toppled this weekend yeah just last night in toronto uh the ryerson at ryerson university so there have been calls for a number of years to get that university changed the name changed and then it's uh last night there was a rally outside of there and the statue was torn down here's some video of it happening as you can see the statue had had been defaced And uh, with a tug from a vehicle, down it comes. Has there been any word? I mean, we've been live for the last couple of hours. I've not been paying attention to it. I don't know if you have, but has there been a response? The school says they will not be replacing it. Okay. I I have not heard about the if there's a name change. The thing that I think about is like, I applied to go to Ryerson for a journalism degree. And I went, I decided to go down, uh, over to King's College over uh in Halifax for journalism, but just thinking of all the degrees that are out there, if they were to change the name, like, I mean, that's not a big deal. It's a big, it's a big deal for those folks. And like, what does that mean? And what does that legacy mean on their, on their degrees? But I also think that, you know, larger picture, the name uh, is uh, like of an architect of the residential schools. So it's, huh? Yeah. I haven't thought of it really like, I mean, this is I was talking to a buddy the other day and he, he reached out a, a Real Talk audience member. Sure. Appreciate him tuning in. And he says, pal, they live in the city of St. Albert, uh, just north of Edmonton. He says, like, we live in the Grandin neighborhood. He mm. says, I had no idea. He says, I had no idea the namesake. And I think most people are familiar with the name Bishop Grandin. I told you my sister is a graduate of Bishop Grandin High School down in Calgary. I'd be curious to know how people wrestle with that. Like, you know, I mean, you know, the, the name change uh, or the pending name change, let's call it of a neighborhood in, in central Edmonton, Oliver, the Oliver community league is probably the most prominent advocate for changing the name. Mm-hmm. You know, I've, I've spoken to the, you see the grand, I think he's the great grandson, Brent yeah. Oliver. Yeah. Uh, he, by the way, he's in the band, Ayla Brooke and the sound men who have gifted us our title track, Right. Uh, the title track of Real Talk, Brent Oliver in that band. And I've, I've interviewed him before on a different radio station. He says, change the name. Frank Oliver's history, um, both at the federal government level and as a publisher, uh, with some pretty appalling commentary and actions aimed at indigenous people. The Pappas Chase, yeah. You know, he, his, his, his descendant says, change the name. Brent Oliver says, change the name. I'd be curious to know if that resonates with people that, that are a graduate of a school. I mean, like, I didn't even think of the angle when you say, you know, I mean, a graduate of, I mean, Ryerson is, is, is seen as the journalism. No, no offense to Kings. Uh, <laughs> How dare you? <laughs> and, uh, you know, if it makes you feel any better, my alma mater is not even in the top 50. So, um, 
and they've still not invited. I don't have a J. And they've, and they've still not invited me to speak there. I don't really, I don't really know what's going on with that. Uh, I but, didn't. But to, to your point, I didn't realize Ryerson to me is just like it's the pinnacle. Like mm-hmm. it's and Carlton Ryerson and Kings uh, are kind of like the big three. And so to me, it was I I until this this conversation in the last couple of weeks, I didn't know the legacy of Ryerson. Hmm. Chelsea says, you know, there's a big difference between canceling somebody and realizing that a person should not be honored in the same way they currently are. The Mm. difference between acknowledgement and honor. Chelsea gets two points for the hitting the nail on the head award today. And Chelsea, I'm going to ask you in particular to please chime in on our question of the week, because that's what we ask you. And I'm not going to spoil the poll. You're going to have to go through it. It honestly will take you three minutes, but you go through it. And then the last question, I love the last. Should I, I always say I'm not going to do something. I do it. That's kind of my legacy here on this show. As I say, I shouldn't say this. I'm not going to do this. And then I within four seconds, I do it. But I love how it ends. And it ends by asking who should we honor? And I like that question, but there's, but there, there's a difference. And, and who was our guest last week? One of our guests last week said that the premier is guilty of conflating, you know, history with, you know, th- th- there's, you, you know, you don't cancel. Sir John A. Macdonald cannot be canceled. It's impossible to can there, that's that cannot be canceled. It's, 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 it's quite frankly, a ridiculous statement. And don't even get me started on all the double standards around cancel culture. But I, I you know, with regards to this statue of Ryerson, I hope that that doesn't just go into, you know, get melted down for recycling or I hope that it doesn't just get thrown in the garbage. Like I would actually I, I think and, and I, I haven't necessarily 100 percent thought this through. But you know what I think would be incredibly powerful. I mean, I mean, it may it'll it'll have controversy swirling around it no matter what the decision is. But I'd like to see it with the with the base, the pedestal, so to speak, and the statue reinstalled in a museum somewhere with the graffiti all over it. And I'd like to see a plaque that explains the legacy and the contributions, you know, as I say, good or bad at risk of coming across as like, you know, people on both sides that but I'm just saying, explain the legacy, explain what was seen as popular at the time. Here's why the statue was erected and here's why the statue was toppled. Here's why it is splashed in red spray paint. Here's why it's surrounded with uh, tiny pairs of shoes and children's teddy bears. This is this is have a photo of it or an artist's rendering of what it looked like as it toppled or something like that, and then have the statue in the museum. But there's a difference between having a statue of, of Ryerson or Bishop Grandin or Sir Johnny McDonald or whomever else. I mean, people are going to start talking about Emily Murphy and Louise McKinney, and people yeah. are going to start talking about eugenics and, and racism across the board in Canada's past. And I know that the real concern for some people is that, you know, everything up until 2019 is going to be wiped out and erased and your grandkids, grandkids aren't going to understand any of this history, but I don't think that's the way it goes. But I think to your point, if the, you're talking about a fulsome picture of history. So if we have at, you know, the Royal Ontario museum, just down the road from Ryerson, you could take that, that statue and have it there and have the explanation of how this has unfolded, why it's unfolded, where we were, where we are and where we're going. That it's, that's, that's the important piece to this is that we are learning. And as was said by Dr. Jody Carrington, we, we are listening and we listen and we listen and then we act. And so we acting with intention and 
yeah, I just, I, I really feel like it's important to, to, when I hear cancel culture, I hear somebody being dismissive and dismissing valid points that it's basically a cheap way out of uh, a conversation. And I see it as a red flag. I really, truly do. When I hear anybody use the term cancel culture, I'm like, you're not interested in having a real conversation is how I see it. I, I don't actually, I don't think cancel culture exists. I think it's about accountability. And I, what, what was the, the comment here about honoring and what was the other one? It was so good. What the person wrote. Oh, what was it? Oh, Did God. you say, are you, are you talking about Chelsea? Where yes. she said, yeah, she said there's a big difference between canceling somebody and realizing that, realizing that person should not be honored in the way they currently are. It's the difference between acknowledgement and honor. Exactly. So to me, this whole, I, I would like to see us just forget about the concept of cancel culture because it's not a real thing. It's a tactic, in my opinion. <laughs> Randy Thunderhorse says, maybe some of you, uh, am I understanding this correctly? He says, maybe some of you anonymous indigenous, or maybe he means, I think he means non-indigenous folks. I think that's it. Uh, Some of you non-indigenous folks while celebrating Canada, waving the flag can take a moment to think of what it really means to us natives. That from Randy. And I, I feel like, when it comes to these conversations around cancel Canada day and, and when it comes to some of this, the sounds like such a, you know, I sometimes wrestle. I feel like I, I wish I had more like a thesaurus app in front of me. I was going to say some of the sensitivities around, and I don't mean to like use this sort of whitewashed, gentle, non-threatening, comfortable language all the time. You know, what is the discovery of 215 children's bodies? Well, it's, it's reiterated some sensitivities, It's an inadequate word. But I think, you know, the spirit of what I'm saying, the reason why so many people are going to wrestle and grapple with Canada Day this year, which is a good thing. Is exactly what Randy's talking about is is exactly why when I saw the car with the two Canada car flags, which would be the least controversial thing to do for the last 150 years ish. I mean, if you had a car flag 100 years ago, people would wonder what the hell was going on. Also, there was no, as we learned, 1965. 1965. And there was no cars. No cars. If you had a... No, and I'm not going to start getting silly now. But if but if you... But it, it, it was not a controversial move. And right now, it feels like... Maybe this is just my bleeding heart, but it feels like a political statement in a way to fly the Canadian flag at a time when most people are wearing orange shirts and they've changed their profile pictures and they're mourning... And, and wrestling with and confronting this ugly part of our history. And, and Randy absolutely nails it when he says, take a moment to think of what it means to us. And I appreciate that comment. I really appreciate that comment. Hmm. I just saw something from Terry that I'll just say something gets past us. Something, some, something sneak past our, our, our editing team. And, and Terry s- says something like about our wording of our question of the week. Let me go back to it. I'm not afraid to have this conversation. Uh, what's she talking about? It's forced an urgent discussion about how Canada treated and continues to treat our indigenous communities. And Terry takes issue with the word our, which is fair criticism. 
Last thing I'm going to do is push back on stuff like that. That that is the whole point of this is these conversations. That's the whole point. These learning exercises. I know that's why you're all here and I so appreciate it. You know, uh, coming up on uh, Friday, don't have to tell you, we'll be talking trash to wrap up our broadcast week. And we just absolutely love that this has become such a thing that we're making pretty difficult decisions when it comes to trash talk because we're receiving so many submissions to talk at ryanjesperson.com. I know the team at Local Waste is really excited about it because they suspected when this show launched that it was going to be an engaged audience. And you prove it. You prove it every single week. You can send in your gripes, your rants, your raves to talk at ryanjesperson.com. Make sure you label it trash talk. The team at Local Waste loves to talk trash and uh, there's something there's something pretty garbagey going on right now in alberta's waste community and tomorrow we're gonna have details for you on that as a matter of fact there's there's a, a company you gotta be careful the words i use um, in some people's opinion this company is trying to scam business owners and we're gonna have that for you details tomorrow it's on our radar thanks to the team at local waste you can find mikhail lauren and chris their team all the details at localwaste.ca or you just check out the sponsors tab at ryanjesperson.com that's also where you'll find the team at kubi energy they are Tesla certified. Their team of installers, certified electricians and electrical apprentices hard at work right now across Western Canada out of their two offices in Kamloops and Edmonton putting in solar. I mean, this is sustainable energy plans for small residential applications all the way up to big industrial applications. And then there's that beautiful one at the Edmonton Convention Center. If you want to see more on that, just Google Solar Edmonton Convention Center. That's Kubi that did that. You can find more about them online at kubienergy.ca. Every week, our first show of the week, our friends at Kubi Energy get us started off on the right foot for the next seven days or so. It's a positive feature we like to call Positive Reflections. Now, of course, these are also submissions that we receive. I mean, some of you send these to us on Twitter or Instagram using the hashtag RealTalkRJ. You email them in to us as well. Why don't we start, Sam, with that video from Manit? I absolutely love this one from Manit that said, this is a video that's going to get, I said, this was really moving for me, and I think the audience might love it. You know, you had Gurdeep on the other day dancing the Bangra. She says, check this out. This is a CBC documentary. Uh, you can find it on CBC Gem called Beyond the Bangra. And look at this. It's a collaboration, if you will. Let's call it a cultural collaboration. We always talk about seeking to understand. I love this. Look at this. Indigenous dancers, Bangra dancers coming together to understand the different cultural art forms. Manit said, uh, based on recent conversations right here on Real Talk, I thought that your audience might find some positivity in this. Manit says, I know I sure did. And I'm so grateful that you shared that videography. That cinematography oh, this. is absolutely outstanding. Sam, can we hear it full sound for a second? That's called Beyond the Bangra, and you can find it at CBC Gem. Oh, by the way, Manit also said, and, and hey, Ryan, I'm, I'm, I'm just really sort of hoping that you could choose my submission this week for this week's Positive Reflections because it's my birthday. And for my birthday, my life partner gifted me this. And Manit is showing off their beautiful brand new real talk mug a perfect birthday gift for that loved one in your life 
the one that's hard to buy for, the one that has everything, consider Real Talk merch at ryanjesperson.com. Manit didn't ask me to turn that into a shameless plug for our merch store, our online e-commerce store that we're really proud of, but I just thought I'd throw in that little plug. I couldn't help myself. Speaking of Real Talk mugs, what about this one from Shalane? Absolutely loved this email. She sent this in just a short time ago. These are, you know what I love? This is also people being able to show off how good their lawns look. And, and Shalane, we happen to know that Shalane has a dog, right? Because it shows us right here says okay this is me and my penny girl so that's penny and what i'm particularly annoyed with in this shot is how good shalane's lawn looks for being a dog owner my lawn is an absolute disaster right now as a dog owner but shalane has that perfect yeah there's a couple spots there but that perfect deep green that's our new one her lawn has the perfect deep green that's the new eden landscaping plug we just found it we knew it would land in our lap shalane says i'm just sitting here watching the sun break through the clouds she says that was my beautiful saturday morning my husband's it is 8 a.m. tea time and the kids are still asleep. Shalane is finding her peace. She says we're watching R- Real Talk segments. Rewatching, she says, enjoying coffee and Baileys from my Real Talk mug. She says it dawned on me that this is a positive reflection moment. I wanted to share it with you all. Thanks, she says, for giving us the best content, the best conversations and helping me learn and grow every day. That from Shalane. Absolutely beautiful. How about this one from Debbie? Debbie sent this in and and just says, hey, we've got a new nine week old in the house that has just learned to sing. She says it's been a tough week. She says, we, says Debbie, as white settlers on this land are learning so much. Harsh lessons that were learned at the expense of others. She says, I know that there are more hard truths coming our way that we need to hear. But in the meantime, she says, and this is real life, right? This is the balance. This is the complication. This is the positivity and the beauty here in the struggle. Our new puppy, Bruce, at nine weeks old, he's just discovered his reflection in the mirror. For those of you that are listening to the podcast, I know I should know what type of dog this is. What do you think, Hoyles? What do you think, Sam? Is it a terrier of some sort? It's a... Or did, what did you say? Oh, I said it looks very terrier-esque. Yeah, it looks I'm terrier-esque. No like a beautiful white little guy. I think it's a... Isn't it a Yorkie? Is it a Yorkie? My, my, it's my one of those beautiful my, little white ones. My small, my small dog knowledge is, is, is like not where it needs to be. <laughs> it's check. not exactly yeah. where it needs to be. Uh, I'm, I'm looking here. I'm looking on the live chat because I know that somebody's going to get the information to us right away. But there you have it. Absolutely beautiful. Debbie, thanks for sharing. And Bruce, welcome to Planet Earth. And this one in closing, love this from Elastigirl. Elastigirl sent us this tweet and said it was an honor over the weekend to be invited to the Solidarity Run. The Solidity is the Solidity Solid. Oh my gosh, why am I Solidarity Run? I'm tripping over solidarity. it. Solidarity. The, the Solidarity Run for Tecumloops to Suetmuk. I can say that, but I can't say solidarity, says, I'm thankful. I'm thankful that we had friends joining. And I love this from Elastigirl who says, listen, learn, amplify, and act. Listen, learn, amplify, and act. What an absolutely beautiful message. That's our positive reflection for today. Listen, learn, amplify, and act. 
You can send in your positive reflections to talk at ryanjesperson.com. Coming up on tomorrow's show and later this week, you are not going to want to You're not going to want to miss. What is wrong with me right now? You know what's wrong? It's because it's after 11 o'clock yeah. and my brain only ever signs up to do this for two and a half hours. And I'm really struggling, but I hope it's fun for all of you to see. Julie S. Lalonde joins us tomorrow. Going to be an amazing conversation. Uh, the Green Party leader, Annamie Paul, she's she's new on the in the role, relatively speaking. We'll understand what the next federal election looks like for their party and what her stamp will look like when it comes to the Green Party. Rabbi Jill Jacobs brings us back to another important story. Violence in the Middle East is a two-state solution, the answer or something else. The rabbi joins us on Wednesday and on Friday, our roundtable around rural resentment and the and then a conversation about the energy economy. That's all coming up in the days to come. In the meantime, we thank you in advance for taking our questions of the week at ryanjesperson.com. We'll talk to you soon.